right, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out. This is a really interesting, unique event. Um, I'm, there are people here who have flown here from different states. There's like more than five people who flew here just for this. Wow. And uh, it's not just – thank you, man. I appreciate that. Um, not only, of course, that's flattering, but, but <laughs> thanks, man. We might need that about you one hour it. in. Yeah. And, you know, that's very flattering and all, but uh, I'm not crazy. Uh, no one's flying several hours because of me. I mean, I'm pretty fucking smart and cool, but I'm not that smart and cool. Uh, what's but you're re- sweet, Justin. You're very sweet. Well, thank you, Curtis. I appreciate that. Uh, r- the reason I'm commenting on this before we even begin is because you all need to – like, people really need to understand that there is an extraordinary demand out there for, for true, radical, dangerous, intellectual thought and expression and discussion. And there is an unfortunately uh, constrained supply. There is an artificially constrained supply of true intellectual life. And people should not have to fly – hundreds of miles to come listen to someone like Curtis talk. Um, there is a huge demand for it. It's not being met. And if, unfortunately, the way things are working out right now is if you want this kind of thing, you have to make it yourself. DIY, baby. Punk rock culture, dude. Get a, get a venue in where you live. Put on things like this. You know, the institutions aren't going to do it for you. Academics aren't going to do it for you. Almost everyone out there right now who is kind of representing some sort of intellectual posture, let's be honest, about 90 at least 90% of them are, are utterly fake, absolute, absolute fakers. And if you want real intellectual life, no one's going to give it to you necessarily. But if you build it, they will come. Look at this. I'm not that famous, people. Like, I'm really not. I do not have that big of a following. And yet I do this little event, and people will fly across states. So my exhortation, I want to start essentially with an exhortation. If you think this is cool, if you enjoy this talk, if you were excited to come to this, and if it lives up even halfway to what you wanted it to be, the type of intellectual kind of community or, or dialogue, the exciting kind of dangerous, edgy intellectual experience that you want it to be, which I think Curtis and I are both committed to making it that for you, then go home and do it yourselves. Provide this for the other people around you. you people should not have to fly this far just to be a part of this. So that's just a little exhortation. Fortunately, you're watching this on YouTube in uh, porn mode. <laughs> You can hit record now. We're going to start. <laughs> We're good? Yeah, yeah. You sure? Okay, cool. So, okay, that's my little exhortation because people should not have to fly this far to uh, be a part of something like this. Welcome uh, to this little event that we put on. This is my first live show of my podcast. The podcast is called Other Life, and it's pretty much all about me trying to find true intellectual life wherever it exists. And today, that mostly means on the internet. So most of the people I interview for my podcast are bloggers, uh, kind of strange, interesting, unique, idiosyncratic, and and very courageous people, typically, uh, or just weird people who are out there, you know, uh, pursuing some type of independent intellectual life that is escaping this kind of institutional uh, apparatus that is is so constraining on so many people nowadays. That's what my podcast is all about. That's why it's called Other Life. You know, it's about a different kind of life. I started it when I was an academic, and I just, I needed, I needed to find people to actually talk about interesting, real stuff with. Um, so that's my podcast, Other Life, and, and this is the first time I'm doing a live show. So, um, yeah, this is a milestone for me, and I'm, I'm very happy to have you all here. So enough, uh, enough on, on general introductions. I would like to now uh, introduce our special guest here tonight, Curtis Yarvin, a.k.a. Mencius Moldbug. And uh, I'm going to pick his brain about many things. Uh, I have some questions that were actually submitted to me by other people. Fuck. Yeah, no. <laughs> 
but Kurt, Curtis has told me anything goes. He's told me, you know, there's there's no there's nothing off limits. Uh, luckily, I'm I'm a fairly friendly interviewer. I'm not I don't have any hardballs for I'm you. Rethinking that now. <laughs> um, so I'll give you a little bit of introduction. Uh, most of you are here. You probably already know Curtis's shtick. But uh, what I think is most good in, word. What I <laughs> come on, come on here, guys. What I think is most. Uh, you know, Curtis is mostly known for being a reactionary blogger uh, and, of course, a brilliant uh, startup founder. Uh, but in these circles, you're probably kind of most known for being a rather reactionary blogger. But what I think is kind of most interesting about you, Curtis, is not primarily your reactionary qualities, which are uh, interesting for sure, and we'll, we'll get there. But primarily, you're a computer scientist or an engineer. Is that uh, what would you say, engineer, or how, what's what's the label you would use? I, I like to think of myself as a computer programmer. Computer programmer. There you go. Old school. I like the modesty. Uh, and so I'm actually, I tend to see your writings mostly through that lens. Uh, I, I see you as uh, your blog, which we'll, we're going to kind of dissect over the next hour or two. Shit. Uh, I, you know, I, to me, the defining characteristic of your worldview and your political theory is not so much your reactionary qualities, but I see your reactionary qualities as kind of downstream of your engineer mentality or your, uh, you know, computer programming type of mentality and experience. I, I see you as Curtis likes to, I think, uh, kind of hack into the source code of a lot of conventional wisdom, in particular kind of the politically correct wisdom. And then once he's kind of hacked into your source code, he wants to uh, bring you places that maybe you don't necessarily want to go, but he wants to kind of lure you there. Yeah, that, that's a that's a you know fairly uh, insightful uh, comment, Justin. Uh, I would say uh, something a little close to that, which is just that I like to think from first principles. And so, you know, when I see a large system uh, or a complicated system, I'm like, okay, you know, what would this look like if you designed it from scratch? Clearly, this is a product of history. Um, it's spent a lot of time, you know, evolving. Um, you know, as I record, there's a lot of Americans concerned about their 401ks. Um, and so I'm like, what is the stock market thing? Where did this come from? How does this work? You know, this is a very interesting kind of question to me. Um, and uh, I think that that approach... Um, can be used by a lot of people for a lot of different things. Excellent. So my my intuition there is not wrong. Mostly. Okay. So I think that <laughs> I think that's enough of an introduction. He's a computer programmer, a well known blogger, and uh, a founder of an enigmatic startup called Urbit, which we might have some time to get into a little bit too. Now that you've formally walked away from Urbit, I think are you now a little bit more free to discuss it or? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm a little bit more free, but I'm also more distant from it. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I say should not be taken as, as gospel. Um, uh, you know, anyone can read my uh, my resignation letter, uh, you know, and um, amusingly enough, my, uh, sort of unusually for Silicon Valley, everything I wrote in that is true. Um, so, <laughs> Cool. Great. Then I don't think you need much of more of a warm-up. I think we can get right into the interesting stuff that people are probably here to hear you talk about. I see you as very interested in, well, you're kind of a pill dispenser, aren't you? Yeah, sort of. You like dispensing pills, whether they be red pills or most, most recently clear pill is, is a recent idea you have. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not you know, I, I, I have questions about that as a marketing concept, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sincere about it. Right. I take, that, I take that as sincere. In fact, to my understanding, you actually popularized the term red pill in the political context. Is that right? Yeah, that's actually true. I, you know, I can tell you actually where I was when I came up with that, which is um, 
in the uh, Haight-Ashbury at Hayden Masonic. I was in the People's Cafe, and the People's Cafe in, in, is... Um, the decor in the People's Cafe uh, is um, entirely like 60s revolutionary stickers, so, you know, it's a very kind of positive place. Um, and, uh, you know, to those who have seen The Matrix, obvious, you know, it's obvious that, you know, the red pill is this kind of left-wing, you know, analogy. But, um, you know, what if you made it a right-wing one? Wouldn't that be interesting? Uh, right. So what I thought would be a good exercise to kick things off is maybe you could dispense a kind of pill right now. And I, wow. I was thinking, I was thinking a really Can you be more specific. Yeah, I was thinking a really good place to start would be on the concept of democracy. Oh sure. Um, um, okay. Uh, you know, let's 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 talk about uh, democracy for a second. Uh, you know, I've actually have a nice little line prepared on that, um, which is uh, you know. You know, people are very fond on, on Twitter and so forth of these political quadrants. And um, one way you can draw a political quadrant is to say um, you can ask two questions. You know, is your country a democracy and should it be a democracy? So the set of people who answer no to both of those questions, that's a relatively small set and it's a pretty freaking weird set. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of part of that set. Um, so, so that's my perspective. The reason I wanted to start with democracy as a good test case is because it's arguably one of the most universally applauded concepts or values right now in kind of mainstream culture, right? Democracy. Well, I was, was going to stop you before you said, uh, you know, right now, actually, it's, it's uh, pretty much universally reviled, but um, it's only universally reviled if you consider all historical periods as equal. Hmm. Right. For most of the history of the term, it was a bad thing. Uh, yeah, because yes. people, you know, saw, you know, the history of Athens and so forth. And, uh, you know, the history of Athens basically is an independent principality, basically ends with democracy. Um, and, you know, the history of the Roman Republic ends in a very turbulent way. Right. Uh, and so, um, you know, who is it? Uh, you know, John Adams, um, you know, the greatest American political philosopher, of course, second president. Um, I'm, I'm trying to recall his, uh, his words on democracy, um, verbatim, but, um, you know, he's like, uh, you know, this is the worst political system ever. And, uh, this is one of the founders of, you know, the, the, like the main philosopher of, you know, the main person whose kind of political writing still holds up from the American founding. Yes, that's right. I mean, for most of the the history of the term democracy, it essentially means what we now think of as something like anarchy. It's just kind of seen as synonymous with chaos, something or, to be or, avoided. Or, or if you're familiar with the worm, uh, the word uh, populism used as a pejorative. Uh, you know, so one one simple example that I sometimes use is um, let's take two words: politics and democracy. So you'll notice that when you think about those words. Um, you have very different associations with either. So suppose you were to say, oh, we're going to politicize this. We're going to politicize U.S. foreign policy. We're going to politicize the State Department. We're going to politicize the coronavirus. That's clearly a very bad thing to do. But if you're going to democratize this, you know, if you're going to bring democracy to China or whatever, wasn't there that great Guns N' Roses album, Chinese Democracy? <laughs> Can you buy that in China? You know, I sometimes wonder, uh, man, um, um, so, you know, if you're going to democratize something, you know, there's, there's uh, absolutely no question that democracy has a completely positive set of associations. And politics, you know, like office politics is bad. Um, you know, anything political is bad. And yet you look at these two words and you're like, wait, they're synonyms. 
but one of them is good and one of them is bad. Uh, you know, and if you can explain that, you know, basically, I, I don't think you have any need for any of my pills. It's almost like in your grand narrative, democracy is sort of the root of all problems in some sense. Oh, that that would be going too far. I mean, uh, you know, democracy is is a very legitimate. Um, it's it's one of the many, like one of the three basic political systems. And you know, as a political system, even more, it's basically a form of political energy. You know, even in a country like you're in the Soviet Union, there's no real democracy. Maybe there are fake elections, but you can say, does democratic power still exist? Of course it does, because it's what overthrew or what helped overthrow the Soviet Union. So, you know, this basic force never, at least abstractly, disappears. And no one, certainly no one has refuted the categorization of, of Aristotle into three political systems, democracy, rule of the many, oligarchy, rule of the few, and monarchy, rule of the one. Mm. Real quick, not to digress too much, but it, when was the last time you did a public talk IRL? Uh, mm, 2012. 2012, without, uh, no, being, without being canceled. Uh, uh, without being canceled. Well, I did a, no. I mean, I did, I, I've done technical talks like once or twice, but um, um, yeah, I've never, uh, you know, I don't usually do public appearances, so I'm kind of a virgin here. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. Uh, you'll, you'll have to excuse me if I feel, seem a little, a little nervous and, and weird. No, no, you seem great. I was only asking because I'm kind of, I'm, I'm thinking a lot lately about uh, kind of the shifting tides of the, of the culture wars. It seems to me that something like this would maybe not have even been possible a year ago. The, the protest energy might have been too great, uh, threats of having it shut down or whatever the case might be. Whereas now I have this kind of sense that, personally, that we're kind of turning a corner uh, where this type of thing is now more possible. I was just curious if you have any similar type of intuition. Well, you know, that, that may be true in a sense. Um, you know, the one thing that I try um, really hard to do that has been um, sort of the perennial kind of, if I may use the term, um, shit show uh, of the last three years is that um, I feel like a lot of people, when they create, you know, uh, heterodox content, um, I, you know, the word, uh, do you know the origin of the word trolling, by the way? I'm not sure that I do. Uh, let me tell you the origin of the word trolling, and then Please. I'll tell you why I don't troll. Uh, the origin of the word trolling, first of all, if, if you've ever, has anyone ever trolled, um, you know, in fishing? Any fishermen in the room? I can see, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah that's good. Uh, yeah, you have slowly from the back of the boat, you're dragging basically this lure, right? I have trolled, I have fished for bass, uh, you know, it's lower class to fish for bass, which is why I like it. Uh, and, and um, um, you know, like people of quality fish for trout, and they certainly don't troll. Um, um, nonetheless, uh, the word trolling as we use it now was actually a product of the Vietnam War. Did you know this? I did not. So um, what uh, it was invented, you know, with a clear analogy to the fishing practice, um, basically U.S. Um, um, what were called wild weasels, which were uh, like an F-104, I think, outfitted with some kind of electronic intercept category, would basically fly across um, uh, surface-to-air missile sites in North Vietnam trying to get um, surface-to-air missiles shot at them so they could basically lock onto the launchers and destroy them with countermissiles. So anytime you're thinking of the word trolling, you should be like, where are my radar-seeking missiles? And if you're just like out there basically trying to attract fire, uh, you're just, you should really question why you're doing this. Um, um, and, of course, that question could be asked about the whole Vietnam War, right? And so, you know, when people basically go, you know, there were like, if you remember in like an early 2017, there were like these, like, 
provocations in Berkeley, like these Antifa, Breitbart riots. You know, it seems like something from like the 15th century now. Um, you know, the whole thing, uh, you know, was really quite. Um, it was very LARPy, if you know the term. It was very kind of pretend. And the thing that I dislike about it most, and the one thing that I would basically caution all heterodox thinkers about, is that the one thing you really want, don't want to do is inhabit the stereotypes of your opponents. So basically, you have, you know, anyone who's kind of, you know, working in some direction has people working against them, right? And those people who are working against you see you as a certain kind of person. They imagine, oh, this is what our enemies are like. And because the frame is so dominant, it's really easy to inhabit that caricature because basically you've been taught by them, oh, this is what you know our enemies are like. They believe this, they believe that, they do this, they do that. And um, if you basically get that so deeply into your head that you're like, you know, oh, I oppose you, I do this, I do that, you don't really have your own frame. You're still operating in their frame, and you're operating in a way which is much more valuable to them than if you even supported them. So was this type of strategy behind your blog, Unqualified Reservations? Were you thinking about these things proactively when you first set out to do that blog? Uh, no, I was crazy. Um, um, I should never have written anything at all. Um, um, the <laughs> do you mean that? You don't mean that. Uh there's part of me that means that, uh, um, but there's part of me that doesn't. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, you know, when I when I think about the problem of being a, a dissident, I'm always reminded. Do you know the writer Richard Kapuscinski? I don't. He was uh, he wrote mainly in the 80s and 90s. I think he died in the early 2000s. He was a uh, um, a journalist and he was a correspondent for the official Polish Communist News Agency. Um, and um, fortunately for him, he was also an amazing writer and he got sent to Africa. So Africa is kind of relatively tangentially related to Polish communism. Uh, so he could not really exactly write whatever he wanted, but he could be pretty – he could write stuff that was actually worthwhile content. Um, there's some controversy over whether there's any actual truth in his books or whether they're just wholly made up. Um, but even if they're wholly made up, they're pretty good. Um, and so he wrote this book, one book called The Emperor – um, which is about Ethiopia. And so he went to Ethiopia, and, and he, everyone here has heard of Haile Selassie, right? You know, like from like Bob Marley songs or something. So Haile Selassie was this emperor of Ethiopia, and he was kind of a nutcase. He had pet lions. He used to feed dissidents to the lions. It was a little weird. Um, and um, so uh, eventually it was, it, was, it was sort of weird enough, and what we now call uh, civil society um, you know, got started to kind of organize against him, and, uh, you know, he was overthrown. The same thing happens. It always happens. He was overthrown by the liberals, and then the liberals got stabbed in the back by the um, committed Marxist-Leninists, and they established this regime called the Derg, which was about 100 times worse than Haile Selassie ever was. But so um, in, the, in the early days of the Derg, um, Richard Kapuscinski, this Polish journalist, goes to Ethiopia. And he interviews all kinds of people who are basically part of the old regime. Ethiopia, you know, as you may or may not know, is um, in some ways more of a Middle Eastern country than an African country. And it has this, it's a Christian country. It has this very old nobility and this very old elite. Um, and so these people were, you know, the former employees of Haile Selassie. Um, so there's this one interview from this book, or maybe completely fake interview, I don't really know, uh, that sticks in my mind where he goes and interviews a couple who are part of this old ruling this government service class um, who have basically had a son who has become a dissident. And 
subsequently comes to, of course, a very bad end. Um, and he's interviewing this couple, and he's like, you know, uh, tell me when you first suspected that there might be a problem. And, um, you know, the wife was like, well, you know, one day my husband came to me, and he was like, we have a problem. What is the problem? The problem is Tesfaye, their son, Tesfaye has started to think. <laughs> and as a parent, I really relate to that, you know, um, um, and, um, you know, in a way, like, you know, the, um, you know, anyone who is interested in actually getting ahead or um, succeeding in this world would be very well advised not to think. Um, and if they start thinking, they should, you know, and I'm serious about this, they should keep it to themselves. Um, you know, they should hide, uh, you know, there's a great term, hide your power level. Hide your power level. By all means, um, um, you know, if you start thinking, um, don't be like a 15-year-old Ethiopian boy who's going to end up being shot in a month and a half. Um, and um, so, you know, that that's, I think, a certainly, you know, is, is, a, is a valid perspective. Um, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, um, you know, uh, what was this line of Shaw? You know, a reasonable person adapts himself to uh, to society. Uh, and an unreasonable person insists on adapting the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on unreasonable people. And, wh- and what about people who are cursed with this drive or this necessity to think, well, despite you know, the odds? There's a great line. Uh, there's another writer I really adore, which is the writer Freda Utley. Um, so she was writing in the 30s and 40s, and... Um, she was a communist. Um, she was a communist in the 30s. Uh, in the 30s, basically anyone who was smart or cool was a communist. The list of smart, cool people who were not communists is an interesting list. Otherwise, they were a communist. Um, and um, so Ellie was a communist, and she was so committed to the cause that she went and married um, a Russian, uh, you know, well, a bright young Russian guy who was, you know, part of the revolution and actually moves to Russia with him. Um, and... Um, she moves to Russia with him, and then uh, in the, like, their mid-30s, then shit goes bad. He disappears into the gulag. She never hears from him again. And she has, like, a baby son. So she comes back to the U.S., and she has all these chic friends, right? Because communism has always been this very, very chic movement. And she's like, friends, help me. Like, because the Soviet Union really cares. But his friends brought sorry, and um, you know, of course, her friends are just like, "Do I know you? Do I know this person? Who is this anti-Soviet person who's knocking on my door?" They're like, "Fuck you," um, and so you know, of course, she gets nowhere with this, right? Um, sorry, and um, you know, she goes and talks to her friend, um, Edith Hamilton. You know, Edith Hamilton, the great, um writer on mythology, great 30s writer. She talks to Edith Hamilton, and she's like, why are all my friends, like, stabbing me in the back? And Edith Hamilton is like, well, you know, you really shouldn't expect the material rewards of success to come along with the spiritual rewards of telling the truth. You shouldn't expect that. And I think that's true today. And, and you've experienced that, right, Justin? I'll let you talk for a sec. Yeah, sure. So your view. I, I mean, you know, I, I think some so it's possible. You know, Please. one thing you didn't do, Justin, was introduce yourself. Um, and I think it's possible that there may be some people watching who might know who I am, but don't know who you are. 
I wouldn't be so presumptuous to introduce myself. Uh, I mean, you can if you want. All right. Well, uh, you know, I unfortunately I don't know that much about you. Um, but uh, what I know is, uh, let me let me let me just say what I know about uh, Mr. I can, Murphy. Here. I can if you want. But go no, ahead. no, I'll tell you what I know. Uh, so um, you know, Justin Murphy uh, is a. Um, I would describe him as a, uh, a defrocked academic. Is that right? I take issue with that. <laughs> They couldn't fire me because I quit, baby. Yeah, yeah, it's, that sounds very right. Uh, they were, you know. they, I was about to be defrocked, yes. Uh, My, but I'm, I'm, I'm a proud Irish Catholic man, and I just didn't want to give them that pleasure. Uh, many people advised me, actually, to let them fire me, let let them go through with the, the, I would have the, advised the, you the big stink. I believe you did. I believe you emailed me, actually. Um, I called the email to you, actually. Uh, yeah, so I thought long and hard about it, but I decided, ultimately— and this is the only thing that's actually interesting about my case. It's not me per se, but what I do think is interesting about my particular case is my phenomenology of going through this conflict, my kind of cost-benefit calculus at the time. I was a professor for six years, a successful professor. I'm a political scientist by training. I was based in England at the University of Southampton, and I was doing very well. Everything was going pretty much according to plan. Is that uh, what they call a red brick university? Uh, yes, that's right, as a matter of fact. And... Pretty much, I bought into this myth that I, I, I was always kind of conducting my life on, which was that if I play by the rules in academia, and I publish in good journals, and I climb the ranks, and I establish myself and prove myself and get tenure, I had the British version of tenure, I was set. Then, finally, there would come a time when I could speak freely, where I could really do what I want, and I could be free. That was what my advisors, that's what my PhD advisors always told me. That's what I thought um, from the day that I set out to pursue an academic career. And I guess I was the only person stupid enough to actually take that <laughs> promise literally. I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, once I, once I really got arrived, I got the British version of tenure. I had good publications in top journals. I literally said to myself pretty consciously, okay, now I'm going to start being free. I started the podcast. I'm like, I'm going to actually start blogging about whatever I want. I'm going to start talking about whatever I want. And I'm going to really let the chips fall where they may because this whole academic game is only worth it. But it, paying all of those dues over 10 years or more was only worth it to get that freedom. That, that's what I was in it for. So I decided to take it. And immediately I started getting flack. It was very clear, very apparent that that, that type of freedom was never going to come. And at the same time, the academic institutions were getting more and more oppressive, more and more annoying. The amounts of paperwork you have to do, the amounts of red tape, the political correctness, all of the costs of being an academic were increasing at the same time that all of my creative, independent, intellectual work on the internet was gaining more and more traction, and it was more and more fun. And the, the ability to do that freely and independently on the internet seemed to be increasing at the same time that my academic career seemed more and more miserable. So that was when, you know, at that time, I'm realizing all of this, you know, when my administrator comes to me and says that I'm not allowed to use the word retard on Twitter, I was like, fuck you, I'm going to say whatever <laughs> I want on Twitter. And yeah, it was clear, it was clear that push was going to come to shove. They probably would have pushed me out. But honestly, I just didn't want to deal with the hassle. So and, and I, I genuinely decided that I had better prospects as, uh, you know, an independent intellectual pursuing a, a full time intellectual career for the rest of my life, because I'm still young, I still have piss and vinegar. I was like, I can, I can, I can carve out a new path, I can make a new model, I, I think I see it possible so i was like peace out and i decided to do my own thing i didn't i didn't need them to fire me or whatever so that's my little intro about me yeah sure so so kind of my my theory uh you know i i dropped out of grad school uh, in computer science uh for uh, somewhat different but uh certainly not political reasons but um you know i think uh i came to the same realization as uh, justin but um somewhat sooner than justin um, <laughs> that uh, um um you know 
essentially here was this form and this kind of form of science. And, you know, I come into this and I'm like, I take it at face value. I'm like, this is what it appears to be. Um, and then you get in there and you basically discover that you're actually training to be a bureaucrat. And um, my parents were bureaucrats, so I kind of know the experience pretty well. And I'm like, I'm actually, what I'm trying to do here is make alliances. What I'm trying to do here is make friends who will scratch my back when they scratch theirs. I'm trying to be popular. Uh, I'm trying to be on, on a team player. I'm trying to be with the program, you know. And I'm like, you know, this is like, you know, was, I'm sorry to be arrogant, but was Isaac Newton a team player? Isaac Newton was a weirdo and a nerd and a like, like just an impossible person to deal with. And like science, the kinds of people who created, uh, you know, the science and academia and literature that we know um, could never have succeeded in these institutions and cannot succeed in these institutions. And um, unless they have just these amazing talents and, and I've seen people who can do that, uh, you know, I wouldn't try like political science as crazy, but like computer science. Sure. There are people who are amazing computer scientists in a very fundamental sense and also amazing bureaucrats. And those people are very successful and they deserve all the success they get, but they're an exception. Yeah, definitely. So I want to talk about Unqualified Reservations, your notorious blog that you wrote in the late 2000s. You seem to have some misgivings about ever having gained any type of recognition or readership for your blog. You seem to have mixed emotions. I'm kind of curious about that. Well, you know, um, um, it's always very difficult when you have two... Um, I hesitate to say careers. I have zero careers. But um, um, the uh, two... Um, you know, very different directions you're uh, pursuing because they can easily, uh, you know, interfere with each other. It's like one of my favorite, um, you know, historical figures or artists generally is, uh, do you know Wyndham Lewis? Of course. Uh, you know, and so Wyndham Lewis is both, you know, a very, um, you know, not just a legitimate, really a leading literary figure and also a leading uh, figure in painting. Um, and, you know, his, his paintings and his literary work are both, uh, all of his writing actually needs editing, but otherwise it's very good. Um, and, um, and so, you know, but those, those careers didn't really interfere with each other. You know, um, there's another kind of thing that people will do where they make a career in some technical field and then make a shit ton of money, uh, you know, which hasn't actually happened to me. And, um, then, um, you know, quit and go and be, you know, some kind of intellectual philosophical literary figure or whatever, but doing the reverse is very, very difficult. <laughs> was was the blog in your mind when you set out to write it? Was it just for fun, or would you say you had intellectual ambitions to really kind of solve some puzzles around political theory? I, I would say that I had, you know, certainly intellectual ambitions, but um, uh, you know, no, um, um, well, I of course have no political ambitions, but um, I also, you know, I was just not really that interested in who would read my blog. In fact, I never even read the comments, which was probably a mistake. Um, and um, um, the, uh, you know, I absolutely hate reading about myself in any, any context whatsoever. Um, and um, like many neurotic writers. Uh, and so, but I was just like, you know, in a way that was, that era was kind of the last gasp of the old, um, internet way of doing things where you basically, you know, it's like I started posting on like Usenet in like 1989, right? So, you know, that was, that was some time ago. Um, and, uh, you know, in that world, like the internet was this weird thing that no one had heard of. Um, and, um, you know, um, and like 
like my own project, Urbit Today, with which I'm no longer associated. Um, and um, it, having being something that no one had heard of um, provided it just provided this really nice intellectual quality because you know there was you could not imagine it mattering. I mean, I remember the first time that I saw the internet mentioned in the New York Times. It may have been the first time the internet was mentioned in the New York Times. It was the fall of 1988, and Robert Morris had unleashed the famous Morris worm. And so you're reading you're reading the New York Times, and then you read about the internet in the New York Times. It's like your cousin was in the New York Times, right? You know, you're yeah. Like, you write a lot about this actually. How you're very uh, specifically resigned from any type of have, trying to have political efficacy of any kind. You write about this oh, yeah, no, throughout, no, no. Or, throughout uh, unqualified reservations. You say this frequently. And do you think that that's actually a kind of necessary precondition for pursuing a real kind of long-term original creative intellectual project in some sense? Absolutely. Um, um, the, um, you know, and, and let me in a way turn that question back on you. I would say that, um, you know, you can't really be free. Uh, can I get a Buddhist on you? What's that? Can I get all Buddhist on you? Yeah, go for it, man. You can't really be free until you free yourself from desire, man. And um, um, so the um, um, and 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 to free yourself from you know um, one of my big things. If you know those of you who've read my uh, my latest th- series, um, uh, the Clear Pill, featured in the Claremont Institute's American Mind, uh, people have been my editors have been yammering at me for part three for about four months um i'm working on it um um and um so you know one of the things that i really tend to focus on is this word themos um which is um a greek word um that can be translated in a number of ways um i think the simplest translation is ambition um but um you know in plato you see this uh, explicit parallel between themos and eros Eros being, of course, sexual desire. And so desire for power and desire for sex have always been, you know, very, very closely related, especially if you're Harvey Weinstein. Um, and, um, and, and these are like, you know, these were always, you know, now, of course, we, you know, the, the received wisdom is never turned down money, sex, or power. But, uh, you know, before the modern world, that was actually considered kind of decadent. And um, the willingness to sort of resist desire uh, that's not just a Buddhist thing, right? And so, um, you know, when I look at, say, Justin's experience um, in academia, I would say that he expected to academia to be one thing, but he found it another. And the way in which he found it another was he expected it to be something that was not corrupted by power, but in fact it was corrupted by power. And so, in a way, the academia, the academic systems, even of a Red Brick University, like the University of Southampton, these academic systems, um, I'm sorry, I'm just being derogatory for for no reason at all. Um, And um, uh, these academic systems evolved in a world where they were, the relevance was very low. I mean, even, you know, the first, of course, we had this, America had this amazing experience where they elected Woodrow Wilson, who was a professor of political science, president, I'm sure that can never happen again. Um, But, um, you know, before then, if you look at, like, America in 1900, the idea that professors would tell the government what to do, as you probably know, being a political scientist, was, like, it was weird. It would be like hairdressers suddenly took control of Washington, right? You know, and everything was about hair. And and suddenly, um, of course, you know, 
academics have a much better claim to rule than hairdressers. No offense to any hairdressers out there. Um, um, but um, what happened, you know, what led to this sort of kind of way of living that we have now is that you had these, you know, people like the political science professors of, of 100 years ago. Uh, you know, um, you know uh, I don't know if you've read any, uh, you know, Charles Francis Adams, Jr., not much, but at least I know the name. Um, um, you know, um, I recommend anyone read his uh, 1900 American Historical Association uh, address on history if you're interested in history. Um, and um, he was basically like, look, you know, politics is, you know, conducted on this incredibly crude level. Um, and you have, you know, when you look at what people are thinking about when they vote, they just have no idea what's going on. It's this incredibly long essay that was delivered as an address. He goes through every presidential election between, like, 1856 and, like, 1900. And he's just like, in this election, the voters had no clue. In that election, we can see that the voters had no clue. Finally, this election, they had no idea what they were doing. And, you know, he goes through basically both sides of each election were just out of touch with reality. And so, um, you know, this is, this is kind of the anti-democracy of very early progressivism. And so he's like, okay, you know, here's this ship that is not being steered. It's like a ship without a pilot or a ship with a drunken pilot. Who is capable of steering this ship? And, of course, the answer is very clear. Now, Charles Francis Adams, Jr., I mentioned John Adams, you know, earlier. Charles Francis Adams, Jr. is actually the great-grandson of John Adams. So, you know, he's a, you know, this is as blue as American blood comes. And so, in a way, here's this kind of rising academic aristocracy that says, wow, here is a ship with no pilot or a drunken pilot. Someone should take control of it, someone competent, someone who just knows what they're doing, who can actually think. This seemed like a great idea at the time. Um, and what people didn't realize is that basically, you know, this is kind of the great lesson of, of Tolkien that somehow has really been missed, is that basically when you put on the ring, um, you become something different. It's like, you know, my son who's nine, he just, he just read Lord of the Rings, and I'm like, you know, he actually asked me, he's like, why doesn't Gandalf just put on the ring and fucking kick ass? He didn't put it quite that way. Um, and I'm like, well, you know, that question is never really answered in the book. And actually, the book never really tells you. It's like, you know, like Bilbo puts on the ring. Bilbo's this magical power of like a, you know, he has no magical powers at all. So it just makes him invisible. But for Gandalf, he could like turn a mountain into a swamp, right? But he would be corrupted by that power. And so in a way, like, you know... In a world where someone like Justin could just be a scholar and just be like, oh, you know, I'm interested in some issue of political science, um, you know, and it didn't matter, that would be very easy. But in a world where it does matter, what you're going to find is that it matters. And that's going to attract people like your dean or whatever um, who are going to be like, this guy is not a team player. This guy's not with the program. But do you think that because so much intellectual activity or supposedly intellectual activity today is colonized by this kind of power-hungry, institutionalized uh, kind of uh, corruption, is it not in some sense – a great moment for true intellectuals who want to just turn to their blog or write books for truly radically disinterested truth-seeking purposes is now is not now perhaps one of the greatest times to be doing that precisely because so much of what passes for intellectual activity has nothing to do with intellectual activity well you know it's a great moment but it's not an easy moment uh you know um 
you know, let me tell you about the time I was detained in the New Zealand airport, um, or <laughs> let me not. But um, um, the, um, you know, of course, as I said, you know, with Fred Ali, you know, earlier, uh, you know, if it's easy, uh, you're you're not you're wasting your time, right? Um, but um, um, you know, it's certainly not easy, but, you know, it's an interesting, you know, promising time. You know, it's like, uh, you know, to answer this question, um, I had a little, I, don't, I really don't know Justin at all. You know, I don't even trust him. But uh, um, um, the, uh, I, had, um, I had an email exchange with him where I was like, you know, uh, clearly what he's doing down here is pretty interesting and pretty cool. And, you know, when I look at all of you in the audience, I see that you're pretty cool people. Um, I'm also older than about all of you, um, you know, which is interesting um, and always a good sign, actually. Um, and um, so, you know, I was like, Justin, um, I think this is still available, but, um, you know, anyone who wants to is interested in doing the same thing uh, can go on YouTube. And there's an old PBS documentary about David Geffen. So people in the room probably know who David Geffen was, right? Uh, so basically, um, uh, David Geffen, uh, you know, I think he has a a boat the size of the USS Nimitz or something. <laughs> you know, David Geffen has done very well for himself, and, um, you know, he hasn't done well by, um, you know, being a, a parasite. Well, maybe a little bit of a parasite. But what David Geffen did, and this, P- this PBS documentary is very informative, uh, is he basically figured out how to sell the hippies. And his procedure in selling the hippies was, I'm going to become a hippie. I'm going to move into a hippie house, hang out with other hippies, listen to their hippie music. And when I listen to their hippie music, I'll be like, hmm, these people are good. These people, not so much. <laughs> and, you know, hippie music had varied a lot, right? And then uh, he's like, I'm going to take the good people and I'm going to stamp them on wax and I'm going to sell them to the American people who, it's 1967 or whatever, believe that, like, Satan has come back to the earth in Southern California. Um, and, um, um, you know, of course, in the in, in the shape of Manson, Satan does come back, which is kind of part of the problem. Um, um, but I'm going to sell this to like all of America and I'm going to get incredibly rich. Um, and um, so, you know, and of course, you know, that even the stuff he recorded is some of it has lasted as art. Some of it has not lasted. But, you know, he was seriously trying like he was he was actually trying to, you know, here is something amazing that's happening. Maybe he was a bit of a hippie himself. I don't know. But he certainly did drugs with him. Um, but um, I think. Um, but, you know, to sort of bring that into the modern world, um, there was a uh, piece I read in the New York Times um, about six months ago or so, maybe six months a year or something. Um, and it was about the YouTube rabbit hole of radicalization. You've probably heard about the YouTube radic- rabbit hole of radicalization. They're working hard on that one, folks. Uh, and um, um, the, um, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised just because just I mentioned this, you know, like I've doubled your chances of getting demonetized. But um, um, the, um, uh, it, was a, it was a good story. It was, it was really well reported, a really solid story. And um, the, um, but there was this sort of interesting moment where they interviewed this YouTube engineer who or like had a comment from this engineer who'd um, done this kind of internal uh, engagement study on YouTube. And he was like, well, you know, we don't usually think of this as a vertical. But if, if you did think of it as a vertical, and I'm sure, you know, for his query purposes, he's defining this just incredibly, ultimately broadly, right? But he's like, if you did think of it as a vertical, then basically, if you looked at our top four verticals, it would be like... Um, gaming and, um, you know, music 
and sports and the alt-right. And, uh, and, and that's what the article said. Now, now you know, uh, I mean, obviously I'm reading this in the New York Times. So, you know, um, we have to discount this a little bit. But um, the thing is, and this is sort of both the problem and, and the paradox in a way, is that there's a sort of enormous demand for heterodox content out there. And what's missing is basically David Geffen to come and say, this is the good heterodox content. This other stuff is just crap. And, and the so thing you, is... So you really do get my project then. I, I appreciate that. Maybe I invented first. Uh, you know, and, uh, but yeah, no, I think that is your... I, I, you know, well, the thing is, you know, one of the things is, uh, like, when you're looking at anything that's, like, true or makes sense, what you'll see is that a lot of people invented at the same time. And, you know, it's only people like you who execute, you know, rather than me who sits in my room and, and just scribbles, uh, who actually get, gets things done. I mean, you know, like, um, and so uh, it's great that you create your own content, but you may have more of a role as a David Geffen. Um, interesting, interesting. Um, Go on. But, um, but, but, yeah, that's, that's um, in a sense, the level of opportunity. And what's missing is, like, when you think about, I think when most people think about, you know, there's sort of many meanings of this, you know, strange term alt-right, right? What it meant in 2015 is not what it means now. Uh, as you're well aware, um, there are plenty of people in the world with the power to change the meaning of a word, not individuals, but systems. Um, and so in a, in a way, that word has changed. Uh, you know, you might say now, if you were casting the broadest possible net, uh, you know, dissident right, uh, you know, deep right. You know, I tried to make this catch on, but totally failed. Um, you know, people only, uh, you know, if you're coining things, like almost everything will fail. Um, and um, um, you just got to bear that in mind. And um, so in a way, you know, when you look at the breadth of that set, um, what's really missing there is a really just um, just savage quality filter like a really ruthless quality filter. And that's not even going to be a filter. Uh, and I, the one thing I do think, uh, well, Justin gets many things, but one thing I do think Justin gets is that that filter, when most people think about that filter, they're like, they're still thinking these very conventional terms. So they're just like, oh, you know, well, the, the moderate side of this is okay, but then there are these people who go too far. Um, and um, I wouldn't say, like, thinking about it in those terms is very unproductive, um, but uh, there are certainly many. It's very, very easy. There are many ways to just simply be wrong, um, and you're just never going to win by being wrong. I'm curious, what kind of traffic was Unqualified Reservations getting at its peak? I never looked. You never looked? No. Really? Um, no. I never looked. Okay. Interesting. If you were writing Unqualified Reservations today from scratch? Let's say you you're, you were at the same age that you were writing Unqualified Reservations, but it's today. Would you do anything differently? Uh, yeah, I'd probably do everything differently. I mean, for, like one, th for one thing, uh, well, for one thing, the age of the blog is gone. So, uh, you know, a couple of things have changed about the internet. Um, the age of the blog is gone. It's dead. It's over. It's done. Uh, you can't bring it back. Um, it's very sad. Uh, the age in which the internet was sort of something special that not everyone was on is completely dead. You know, basically in Usenet in, you know, 1991 even, you sort of relied on the just the abstruseness of this medium to provide, you know, this kind of passive gatekeeping function, uh, which is the same kind of function... Gate, anyone here been to Burning Man? Probably maybe one or two people. Uh, it's the same kind of gatekeeping function that being out in the desert provides to Burning Man, and it just provides this awesome experience of being with people who are, who are your people. 
And that's why people go to Burning Man. It's not because they like the fucking desert. Um, and, um, um, you know, if you could actually have Burning... Oh, well, I mean, the first Burning Mans were on the beach, right? You know, um, and in like Santa Cruz or something. Um, and um, then, it, then it started getting too popular. And that's, that's what happened to, um, um, you know, to Usenet. So basically, when people were writing blogs in like... I started writing... I started my blog in 2007. Even and that was very late, and I always used this very old, old-fashioned, ugly-looking blogger template, which was even more embarrassing. Um, of course, there were no ads on blogs now. I'm always embarrassed when I open someone's WordPress and I see the, like the ads that they're earning like six bucks a month off of. Um, you know, I'm just like embarrassed for you that you have to like present your content this way. You know, um, and you don't even have to. Um, and so, you know, furthermore, so the idea of there sort of being these decentralized. Um, um, sort of pieces of the internet, that's not the real internet anymore. That's not what the internet is. That should be reality. That should be what the next network is. Um, but that's certainly not what the internet is. Um, and um, so that's that's dead. Uh, the other thing that's dead is when you look at these big, um, you know, these hosting services like Blogger, which was once an independent company, but then was acquired by Google, of course. Um, you basically, when you first started using these centralized internet services, the way you thought about it was basically this was just kind of a more convenient way of implementing the decentralized internet. The ethos was still decentralized. And so the idea that you would publish a blog on Blogger and then you would get like an email from like some Google staffer being like, oh, you can't write this essay or like your Gmail account would disappear because you said the wrong thing in your blog. Um, that was unthinkable. Like that, you could not imagine that happening in 2008. And maybe in a sense, maybe I had a, you know, an intuitive sense that that era was ending, but it's, it's certainly long since disappeared. Okay. That, yeah, that's interesting. One of the things people often ask me is, Justin, you know, why are you so interested in people like Curtis Yarvin or Nick Land? Why are you interested in these kind of extreme right wingers? And they often take this as evidence that, I am therefore an extreme right winger, which I'm not. Justin, are you going to hile for us tonight? Are we get a <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't count on that. And what I what I tell people often is that people on the left should be really interested in smart people on the right, even the extreme right, who are smart and who are able to correctly and adequately kind of push away the dumbest, uh, most violent and nasty aspects of the right. So someone like you, for instance, you're very explicit about having very little interest in white nationalism, for instance. Yeah. I keep meaning to actually go on uh, like Nazi podcasts and argue with them. Uh, I may actually do this, uh, you know, and, and like, because these people are just, I don't want to be arrogant, but I think they're just defenseless against me. And, um, and, and, and it's not like, you know, the, the way, the right way, whether you're arguing with a Nazi or a progressive or anything in between, um, you know, no, they're very different. Uh, you know, whether, whether you're arguing with any of those, you know, it should never be an argument. You're not arguing. Do not ever have political arguments as a very bad and unproductive thing to do. It should not be an argument. It should not be a fight. What you're doing whenever you talk to someone who doesn't share your beliefs is, in fact, an intervention. And so you're basically thinking of this person as an addict, um, and he's addicted to the wrong drug. He needs to give that drug up and start taking your drug. Um, I told you he was a pill dispenser. <laughs> 
But, the, you know, that's okay because the first step, you're on I mean, sure, I'll say, yeah, I have something that's actually good for you that will make you feel amazing. But, um, you know, your first step is to get off this junk you're taking, right? And so, you know, basically, um, um, you know, at one point uh, in my, uh, you know, vain attempt to coin uh, terms, I came up with the term uh, brown scare. Um, which is like the red scare, but our fear of Nazis. You know, there's this like Nazi hunters billboard just down the down the street from us. Imagine if it was like the 50s and it was like commie hunters. They actually made this great movie called I Married a Communist. Um, it's absolutely worth seeing. <laughs> uh, Hollywood like had to be like had its arm twisted in, in order to make this anti-communist movie. Um, um, but um, um, you know, brown scare didn't really take off because uh, simply people are ignorant today and didn't know that brown is the color of Nazis. But um, the um, um, uh, which is I mean, that's just terrible. Like you have like you're obsessed with Nazis and you don't know anything about Nazis. You know, um, um, you know, the Nazi party headquarters was the brown house. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, basically what happened, uh, you know, I came up with this, uh, you know, I've admitted it, I guess. Uh, so I came up with this stupid fucking meme, the red pill, right? Or I stole it from the Wachowskis, rather. Um, and uh, I really just robbed them. And um, um, <laughs> imagine how much they must hate hearing that shit, right? You know, <laughs> dear, dear Wachowski siblings, if you're watching right now, I'm sorry, it was not right. Um, and... Um, um, the um, and so basically, you know, I I, I had this idea and I, I filled this you know pill with all these like exotic ingredients and my pill like cost like you know five hundred dollars or it was at least five thousand words you know it was a very high quality product and still is um, and then of course you know what happens to high quality products when you put them on Amazon they get pirated and so basically um, you know um, uh, I mean it's fairly easy to determined that I was the first that was using the stupid meme, but, um, um, you know, there's a kind of puzzle that you don't really, can't really understand otherwise about this red pill thing, which is, um, it kind of seems to simultaneously appear among pickup artists and Nazis. And then, you know, so the question you have to ask yourself is, who is copying who? Did the pickup artist be like, oh, I like this Nazi thing. I'm going to steal it. Uh, or was it the other way around? And, you know, the reality is they both stole it from me. But I stole it from the Wachowskis. Uh, um, and um, so, you know, basically, if you go out on the street and get a, uh, you know, a, you know, just go, like, you know, down to the local corner and get a, get a, get a red pill, what you're going to be getting is either a brown pill or a pink pill. Um, that is certainly not a product I can endorse. Um, but, uh, you know. Uh, I mean, uh, you, you know the story of Albert Hoffman, right? Yes, that story I do. So because still to this day, most of my audience is – more than half of my audience listening to this now and in the future it will be left-wingers. No matter how many people call me a reactionary or try to smear me in that way, nonetheless, most of the people who listen to this stuff are themselves just kind of on the more anti-woke wing of the left wing. So I'm curious. You probably don't have too many opportunities to address this particular cohort. I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, you wrote like on people, people on the edge of being like, uh, you know, choppa heads and uh, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, Justin, you know, what would be actually kind of cool is if, um, uh, you know, weren't you or aren't you or don't you have a past as a very, uh, you know, unironic leftist? Can you tell us about the experience of being a junkie? <laughs> yeah, I mean, t in many ways, I. I I'm still happy to identify as a leftist in some ways. As I get older, I get a little bit more socially conservative in certain dimensions. That's partially a life cycle effect. It's uh, a pretty robust uh, phenomenon, actually. But uh, in many ways, my politics haven't really changed uh, my kind of cultural strategy for 
being a free person has changed. I've had to update that a lot. It was really actually, you might be interested to know this, Curtis, that it was a blog post I wrote the beginning of the end for me and kind of the organized, institutionalized, kind of respectable left was really a blog post, a blog post that I wrote in around 2017. I came to your blog very late, well after its heyday. I just came across people like you and Nick Land. I was an academic. I, you know, I was holed up just reading uh, only approved academic literatures and you know, just uh, working in a cave on my academic research. And I came across your blog. I came ac- across Nick Land's blog. And my initial uh, kind of intuition was just like, oh, I thought all these right-wingers were supposed to be stupid, but these are clearly smart people with serious ideas. And I was just very – I was honestly kind of naively shocked to discover – you know, some real intellectual horsepower on, on blogs such as yours and Nick Land's. And I wrote, I wrote a simple blog post in 2017 as an academic, very naive, just, you know, kind of a well-behaved academic saying, uh, Hey, there are some people on the radical right who are actually really, really smart. And I actually read a lot of it guys. And they're not necessary. They're not really, they don't seem that bad. They don't seem half as evil as people say. They're not endorsing any type of obvious, harmful racism that I can see many, many, you know, you and Nick Land are both at pains actually to reject white nationalism. And I was like, this is actually interesting. Smart people on the extreme, right? That's actually a valuable thing to have in a genuine free ecosystem of, of intellectual culture. So I tried to write this blog post to I my cop. You got a lot of positive feedback. Well, this that. was the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> the, this was the beginning of the end for me. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I got all, I got in a lot of heat for that and pretty much make a long story short. That was when I pretty much, uh, it was clear that wasn't allowed to just simply say, hey, this stuff is worth paying attention to. And, and I think you'll find you know, generally that if people uh, talk about a Voldemort, they're working for Voldemort. Right. Well, yeah. So in any event, just since you asked, uh, that's when I was pretty much was like, you know, my politics didn't fundamentally change. I've always been interested in a, a kind of a certain kind of radical left vision, which I see as associated with transgression and freedom and, uh, you know, a kind of cultural radicalism. Of, that's of, the bait. Of, yeah. Well, in any event, uh, in any event. Uh, it was it was really then that that was the beginning of the end for me. And uh, so since then, I've been trying to occupy this space of not because in some ways I'm being baited by the culture and I'm being baited by other left wingers to become a right winger. The more people call me, oh, Justin, you're a reactionary, you're a racist because you want to talk with people like Curtis Yarvin. In some sense, I can feel psychological uh, attraction to owning that. Right. I'm not a racist. I've never have been. I don't have many even right wing attitudes or opinions. But but the, the sociology of it is pushing me into it. And so I noticed that and I think it would be convenient, like it would be easy and self-serving to just join the right wing groups. I'd be like they wouldn't make fun of me or call me these nasty names. Like, right? I could just I could just hang out with them. But then I realized, no, someone needs to hold this ground of an actual radical left that isn't on board with any of this woke bullshit and is actually just interested in truly radically free intellectual life, whether it be on the right wing or the left wing or whatever. Uh, and so. You asked me to kind of talk about that a little bit, so yep. that's that's all that's relevant for here. I'm curious from your perspective because you don't get to address many anti woke leftists, presumably, just because of how you're perceived, and, and and I think in many ways you're perceived quite unfairly. I'm just curious if you maybe have a particular unique message to the anti woke left. Well, I, you know, I do have a lot of these conversations, but they're typically in private for obvious reasons. Um, do you um, have a lot of friends who are leftists. One or two. Um, um, the um, um, but uh, you know I I don't know friends is a strong word uh, contacts perhaps uh, um, um, the um, but um, yeah you know um, the thing is when people use these words uh, you know right and left these are very very complicated mm-hmm. deep words and um, you know people throw them around you ever see that uh, 
you know, fake uh, viral video of the chimp with the AK-47. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, these these are words that you know are full of 200 years of history, and so to use them in a naive way, I think, is somewhat dangerous. Um, you know, certainly, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I was noticing back, you know, um, almost 15 years ago now that I think is 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 very commonplace is that um, when people uh, I think when you, th- you, know, you know, when you talk about, say, you know, your anti-woke leftists, for example, um, they'll, they'll have this wonderful word, the uh, professional managerial class, um, you know, which is, uh, you know, I mean, it's a lot of syllables. You just say the ruling class, um, you know, or the governing class is a little less pejorative. Uh, I was certainly brought up in that class. Uh, my father was an American diplomat. I went to Johns Hopkins and Brown and Berkeley. Um, and so, you know, um, I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't say that, uh, you know, have any uh, thought of kind of committing treason to this class. Actually, I love these people. They're my people. Um, Culturally, you know, I I can hang out with middle Americans, but I'm much more likely to get along with elite blue state ruling class Americans. Um, But, um, you know, one of the things about this ruling class is that I think it's become very much kind of corrupted by power. Um, I think it's kind of merits as human beings, its intelligence, its ability to take standardized tests, its cleverness. Uh, These things have not dropped at all, Um, but its effectiveness and its wisdom, um, I think, are much lower than they were in the age of Woodrow fucking Wilson. Um, And, uh, you know, that's kind of the tragedy that I think needs to be addressed. And so, in a way, when I look at, you know, the anti-woke kind of leftists, in a sense, even to be even to have a political agenda implies that you're part of the ruling class. You're like, this should be done, that should be done. It's like thinking like a king, right? You know, one of the things I really try to do is not to think that this way and not to have, not to think in ter- terms of agenda politics because you're basically implying that you're a ruler in some sense. Well, you know, you're either in the loop or you're not in the loop. If you're in the loop, you know it. If you're not in the loop, you're basically a sports fan. And so you're kind of having this kind of embarrassing pornographic experience, uh, you know, with respect to power. Um, And um, I really try to avoid that, um, especially in public. Um, And um, so in a way, it's like my, you know, message to these people is, you know, I think that they've, you know, it's like if you look at your average... um, you know, get even past the anti-woke leftist. If you look at your average, uh, I don't like to use pejoratives, but I might say a Bernie bro. Um, you know, so if you're a Bernie bro, basically you've noticed that there's something a little weird about the Democratic Party. Um, and that's maybe it's not, you know, like Hillary Clinton is not like this kind of pure angel of light that you used to maybe think she was. Um, and and so in a way, you know, what you've done is kind of taken this kind of first, you know, skeptical step in a sense. But you know, one step is not really a journey. And so, you know, when you basically look at these, you know, when you look at the DNC shitting on Bernie or you look at the New York Times shitting on Bernie um, and you're like, wow, this is this is very unfair. And then you go and read, you know, the next thing down in which you trust this institution absolutely. And it's like once that absolute trust gets questioned, um, what you'll find is that there's never really a point at which you stop stripping away layers. And, you know, you strip away layers and layers and layers and layers and layers, and sooner before you know it, you're, like, debunking the fucking American Revolution, right? And, and <laughs> so, which literally happened to me. I mean, I can, I can debunk the American Revolution for you, you know? Um, Go for it, man. Do, you, do we need that? 
If you'd like to, whatever you'd like. Uh, I, I think people would be interested. Uh, do you want me? Uh, okay, so um, um, I'll try to be brief. Obviously, a very complicated series of events. Uh, the American Revolution is basically the Vietnam War in the 18th century um, with um, Britain in the position of the U.S. Um, it's actually a civil conflict in between two factions, kind of not just kind of left and right, but, um, you know, Whig and Tory, but these are also religious factions. So it's dissenter or Puritan against Anglican. Um, you know, all these things are not, they're not com- consistently aligned, but they're sort of generally aligned. And so, um, you know, the way from an 18th century English perspective to think of America, imagine you're like a Puritan in England. Um, suppose, it's not quite the same thing, but suppose you're a libertarian today. And then you hear about the libertarian paradise has been built in Honduras. You would be very supportive of that paradise. And then, you know, if your, um, you know, government, you know, sent the Marines to go and wipe out the libertarian paradise in Honduras, you would have a bad reaction to that. Um, um, And so there's this sort of strange situation arises where, you know, there's this conflict between two segments of English society. And then that conflict is a Cold War at home. But abroad, it's actually a hot war. Um, and, and that hot war, essentially the Americans win the war not because they're militarily superior, but because Britain has very little will to fight at any point and loses that will basically completely. So question, are the founding fathers based or cringe? Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a <laughs> you're including a lot of different individuals there. Um, well, and, sort sort them out then, or the ones uh, well, you, the ones you, know, you have views so, on. So, uh, you know, there's definitely a cringe aspect to Jefferson, uh, but I mean, uh, um, because you know Jefferson, you know, becomes this huge fan of the French Revolution. He's like this massive Francophile. Uh, you know, he writes these things about the French Revolution where he's like, you know, the tree of liberty must be watered with blood. You know, like have you ever listened to the lyrics of the Marseillaise? I'm not sure I recall. Uh, like, the French national anthem is all about, like, we must drown the country in the blood of the foreigners or whatever the fuck, right? Um, and they sing this. Um, and um, so, you know, there are aspects of the American Revolution which are, um, especially the early American Revolution, which are very, very Jacobin-like. So if you look at a figure like Samuel Adams, um, who kind of disappears from history because he's just, he's just a fuck, um, you know, like, he's like, uh, you know, um, um, who would Samuel Adams be? Uh, you know, Billy Ayers is not too far away from Samuel Adams, right? He's really the, this just this complete rabble, completely unprincipled rabble rouser. And they were right? all torn on the French Revolution. This was a major point uh, well, of contention. Well, later. I mean, of course, yeah. this is well before the French Revolution, right? Because it's 1775, right? Sure. But, um, um, you know, the, uh, and the, Amer- and the French Revolution is this kind of dark imitation of the of the American Revolution done by these Anglophiles, basically. Um, and, um, you know, but what, of course, we forget is that our glorious Constitution, you know, as established in 1789, is established in a reactionary coup. Not only is the Constitution a reactionary coup basically orchestrated by George Washington and his friends, a very monarchical individual, one of the things you'll notice is basically the first, you know, you probably can name... Um, you know, the first American constitution, the Articles of Confederation. That the period of, of basically the Congress of the Confederation totally airbrushed out of history. Do you know who America's first president was? It was John Hanson. 
the president of the Congress. And, and the results of that system were so disastrous, and the results of that system were identified by people like John Adams literally with democracy. And, you know, basically, like, there was this just period of, like, they were just like, this is a shit show. We have to establish, basically, responsible aristocratic government. We have to replace democracy with oligarchy. And so we're going to run this constitutional convention thing. But you like that part. Well, I mean, that part was, um, you know, that part was an improvement in that situation. Um, you know, this certainly the new republic was very much an aristocratic republic, and you know, it managed to to subsist. I mean, people go and watch, you know, Hamilton. I mean, God, if they knew the things Hamilton said about democracy, I mean, you know, uh, I'm like. Alex, you got to calm down. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, um, so you know, it, you know. It, I mean, it's a complicated era. You can't reduce, you know, the like, you know, uh, twenty-five years between seventy seventy-five and eighteen hundred to like these people were based or cringe. But sure, of course, I just thought. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you want to read about this, let's get off the subject, which is very, very technical. And uh, you know, the one thing that I discovered that's absolutely wonderful is let me tell you uh, in a form of a parable. Let's say you grew up in Slobovia imaginary country uh and all you know all you go to school you hear about the glories of the slobovian revolution uh you know of course that there was a slobovia before the revolution you know like there was a period of slobovia was under the heel uh of 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 an evil monarchy you know that right and um the um but you know the hero of uh of the slobovian revolution george Washingtonovich, uh you know um um changed all of that statues to him or everywhere yada 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 so um um you know, you're, um, you grew up believing this, you know, and being like a little cult of personality, George Slobovich Day, whatever, right? Um, um, uh, Washingtonovich. And um, then one day, um, um, you know, some people at uh, this company, Slugel, um, you know, do something weird for like just weird pothead reasons, which is they're like, we're going to put all books ever written in Slobovian online. And of course, this includes books from before the revolution. Like, it includes all kinds of weird books, right? And, and stuff that's just, like, totally not cool. Um, and so one day, you're on Slugle, and you're browsing, uh, you know, these books, and you're like, for some reason, you type in the phrase, true history of the Slobovian Revolution. And the first result, I believe this still works, the first result of this is a book whose title is True History of the Slobovian Revolution. And this book turns out was written uh, over a hundred years ago, and you're like, "Oh, that's interesting. I wonder what these old weirdos a hundred years ago thought about the Slobovian Revolution." And you start reading it, and you're like, "Oh, oh, well, that makes so much sense. Oh, well, I never understood that at all. Uh, you know, it's like so. Here's an example. Uh, you know, ever been to, anyone here been to Philly? Probably some people. Ever been to Valley Forge? How close is Valley Forge to Philadelphia? Pretty, it's like 20 miles. You could walk there in a day, right? So how is it that um, in the winter of, I think, 77 or 78, I think 77, uh, maybe, no, 78, uh, whatever. I'm not one for details. Lord Howe is partying like a monster in Philadelphia. He's occupied Philadelphia. He's gone off and left Burgoyne, who is marching down. Remember the Saratoga where the, the tide turns, yada, yada. You remember, like, the third grade history. Burgoyne has this plan, Burgoyne, who's a, an actual Tory, also a playwright, by the way, um, has this plan to basically cut the Republican half by invading from Canada down the Hudson. Um, and basically, um, Howe, who's the overall commander, ghosts him. 
literally like basically just ignores the plan. Like he's like, I didn't even get that letter. <laughs> Goes and occupies Philadelphia, which is a very civilized town, and just like parties like an animal all winter. Meanwhile, in Valley Forge, 20 miles away, George Washington is starving with his troops. Now, it was the 18th century. They didn't usually fight in the winter, but come on. Can't you go out there and be like, hey, won't you guys surrender? Do you want a hamburger? Uh, you know, and, and like militarily, it simply doesn't make sense. And, you know, essentially what um, Sidney Fisher, the author of this book, uh, The True History of the American Revolution, points out is that you just can't understand the history of the American Revolution, just like you can't understand the history of, the, of Vietnam if you're only understanding it militarily. You have to have an accurate and what I would call Machiavellian, which just means realistic, understanding of what was actually going on. And once you do, you're like, this makes so much sense. So here you're reading this book. It's not even a primary source. And you're just like, this is much more convincing than anything I've ever learned. So that was like, and the great thing about debunking the American Revolution is that, you know, like, uh, to quote Henry Ford, uh, all of history is bunk. Um, you can debunk basically any conflict in history. It will be written by the winners. It's always more complicated than that. But, you know, you want to go in and, you know, uh, rewrite the history of World War II, of the Civil War. Uh, you can get away with World War I kind of, you know, uh, you'll get a lot of, that's a very complicated and interesting problem. But the Revolutionary War, what's amazing about debunking the American Revolution is that now in 2020, nobody actually gives a shit about it. You can basically go and be in a bar and be like, man, the British were right. We should still be under King George III. And they'll be like, man, that's cool. It's so cool that you think that. Well, this is another one of those strange convergences with the radical left-wing critique, right? Because the left also debunks the American Revolution. Oh, yeah, we're supposed to admire those people, but really they were, they were property-owning, you know, slave owners. That's all bunk. It's in a weird way, you're converging with them. And well, well, you know, what I, what I would say about, um, you know, if you read like, you know, you can read, uh, you know, Chomsky is, is a great one for, you know, Chomsky is also a pill dispenser, um, um, you know, and, and you'll read, um, it's sort of interesting when you read kind of um, leftist debunkings. And, you know, I would, when I use the word leftist, I kind of mean, you know, you've kind of become a ring wraith to some extent. And so, you know, you're kind of corrupted by... When it's someone like Chomsky, say, would read the American Revolution, or any kind of, you know, don't even start me on, like, the 1619 Project, basically, they're writing their own history that's generally based on actual facts, although, you know, for the 1619 Project, I think we've gone a little beyond that, but um, um, generally based on actual facts, but you're writing this history to be useful. And so you're looking for something. Here is a piece of history that is useful to me, right? And and in what way could the story of, you know, the Crimean War be useful to the audiences of today? That is the mindset of these people, and that is just not at all the mindset of the historian. And it comes back to power, doesn't it? Yes, it comes, exactly back, to being cor- it comes yeah. back to being corrupted by power. And so, you know, the mistake that people who have a problem with the system often make is they imitate it. And they say, well, you know, um, uh, here's my new history of the American Revolution that's, like, useful for the opposite reason. And, and that's not, like, that is also doing a grave disservice to the people, you know, these are real people who fought, you know, in this war. And, you know, if you look at any war in history, you should be able to understand and empathize with both sides and feel and understand why both sides thought that they were fighting for what they thought was right. 
If you, if you can't do that for any conflict, okay, individuals can be psychopaths, but you can't necessarily identify with a crazy individual. But if you can't identify with a group of individuals, it just means you don't understand them. Mm, well put. And, th- and this kind of brings us to your recent idea about the clear pill in a way because I see especially your recent writings as it's almost as if you're trying to debunk ideas on the left and the right. I think one of the, yeah, so basically the goal of this series, which I'm currently uh, plug, 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 writing at the um, Claremont Institute's American Mind blog, that's kind of the, uh, American Mind is, if you don't mind me saying so, kind of the uh, the second tier publication of the uh, Claremont Institute. If it was really prestigious, I'd be in the Claremont Review of Books. Um, but um, um, the uh, maybe I aspire to that, but, um, um, or maybe I don't. But, um, you know, the, the American Mind, the editors of that have done a really great job of kind of reading reaching out to kind of interesting new thinkers, certainly, um, you know, probably people more interesting than myself. And um, the um, um, and so the goal of this series is basically, you know, I would say if I made, you know, you know I wrote like a few hundred thousand words in that damn blog, so I made a lot of mistakes. But I, I think if I made any kind of strategic mistakes in kind of how to think about this problem, it was the idea that sort of, the cure for the present way of thinking and the way you should be thinking instead were one thing. And I don't think they're one thing and they can't really be understood as one thing. Um, The thing is that whether you're, you know, uh, a progressive or a Nazi or a constitutional conservative or something else, I suppose there must be something else, I can't think of it, Um, um, maybe a centrist pragmatist, um, you basically are kind of attached to a particular way of seeing the current world that um, I would say contains certain contradictions. And, you know, the way that you want to always carry out in kind of a, an intervention, whether it's a personal intervention or a political intervention, is to say, let's think about these contradictions and what you think. It's like my example of, like, democracy versus politics. I'm like, I'm just asking you a question. I'm like, if you can explain the difference why how democracy can be good and politics can be bad, but they're both the same thing, then you have no need of my products. Um, you must know something I don't. Um, because I, I feel like I know the explanation, and it's a pretty darn complicated explanation. Um, and But sort of before you make that explanation, basically – you know, you have these kinds of attachments to these causes, these issues, even these individuals, these parties, these cultural groups, um, which are very, very emotional. You know, it's like being a Lakers fan or something, probably some Lakers fans in the room. Um, let's have a moment for Kobe. All right. Um, and um, um, the... Um, and and you know, and yet you know that there's sort of nothing rational about being a Lakers fan. That it's actually kind of stimulating this sort of um, political instinct, this thymos, this desire to be relevant and powerful, which ends up in like team spirit and like you know just cheering mindlessly in front of the TV. Again, the pornography analogy suggests itself. Um, and um, so, in a way, I'm basically like you know to kind of take that analogy a little bit further. I'm like, all right, young men. Let's face it, you want to get laid. Um, The first thing you have to do, like the way you're thinking of getting laid is basically, how do I meet the girls on the porn site? (laughs) That is basically the way you currently think about politics. Okay, so basically the way... Is this people on the left or the right or both? Really both. Um, and, and, And in order for you to basically have like this kind of normal romantic life like a normal person, you know, the kind of the first step is to just 
give up your porn. So I'm basically going to go through all these different kinds of porn, and I'm going to explain why it's not realistic. Um, and, and, and so that's kind of the purpose of the series in a way to basically say, okay, you know, as a progressive, you know, this is part two, um, I'm not under the illusion that many progressives will read it, but there are a lot of them, so some will. Um, and I'm like, here is kind of what's going on in your head when this stuff excites you. And maybe it's like, if you think a little harder, this is not the thing that you should be into. And then basically the same, and it's a very different story for why constitutional conservatism um, is hopeless and should give up. Um, and then another one for why white nationalists, Nazis, or whatever you want to call them, are hopeless and should give up. And so, you know, when you basically said, hey, you know, all of these things are hopeless, I'm like, imagine, you know, all of these things are hopeless, everyone is trying to change things, and nothing is changing. You know, that kind of fits together in a way. And so to detach people from these kind of false, you know, very false kinds of systems, first of all, it's a service um, you know, in itself, you know, the way, the way I, I think about, you know, how, how should you think about politics or, or power? Let's say that, um, okay, you're probably an American. Um, let's say you move to Costa Rica. You become an expat in Costa Rica. What is your attitude toward Costa Rican elections and the Costa Rican government? Do you consider that this government has no right to rule over you because you did not consent to it? Do you not obey the speed limit? No. You obey the Costa Rican law because you live in Costa Rica. Do you vote in Costa Rican elections? Do you want to vote in Costa Rican elections? Do you, like, notice it in anything more than a practical way? No, then you're sort of completely detached. And that level of kind of detachment from the desire to change the world is very, very difficult. But paradoxically, I believe it's what's necessary if you're actually going to change the world. Yeah. That's seriously fucked up. No, that's something that you and I definitely agree on. I come from a more kind of left-wing trajectory and you from a more right-wing trajectory. But I think it's fair to say that you and I probably agree on something like the proposition that true intellectuals, whether they be artists or writers or philosophers or scientists, if what you're really looking for is true disinterested truth-seeking, one must, A, detach from power and any dreams or hopes of having power or political efficacy, and B, it's probably going to be in some weird nether region beyond left and right. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, you know, you use these words left and right. These are, you know, very complicated words. But that's my uh, point, right? Yeah, that they're so not, yeah, they're exactly. not really good. You, yeah. that, 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 you know, um, I would say that, you know, sort of more, a more immediate problem when you – I would say what people normally mean when they say left and right is simply competing cultural groups that are essentially competing, you know, kind of ethnic mm -hmm. religions almost in mm -hmm. a way. And, um, you know, one of my strongest beliefs is that um, if you ever have, if this country ever, you know, functions again or has a government that functions again or at least maybe can, like, test people for the coronavirus, I think they're getting around to that. Um, 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 like, you know, the, the, like, the difference in capacity between this country and China in that is remarkable. Uh, I mean, frankly, next week I wouldn't be here and y'all would be wearing masks. Um, and um, the, but I wouldn't be here. Um, and uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, mm -hmm. you know, but I, I think that's the case. And um, it's very possible that you're going to see the level of state capacity that we have in this country, um, you know, compared very directly. And, and if you're ever at a point where basically, um, this country actually works and functions as a country, I think it's going to involve, like, I think one of the most striking things about right versus left is I think one of the main reasons that people support either side is fear of the other. 
the main reason that people are like feel passionate about being leftists is they they have this sense that they're defending this like little dot of light of like civilization against this like horde of ignorant peasants and you know anyone who has grown up in that you know that's with that feeling you know like knows that sense that you know we are the enlightened few and the masses out there are coming with burning pitchforks to like spear us and this is not a i mean this is in the modern world a ridiculous fear but historically this is not a ridiculous fear um, and so you have this this sense of like this kind of very deep and bitter loathing between the upper class and the middle class. Most people call when they say mean middle class, they say lower middle class, and when they say mean upper class, they say middle class. Um, you know, but basically between the professional managerial classes and anti woke leftists would put it. Um, and um, you know, the uh, what would you call the you know, Trump voters? The proles? Would you say proles? Mm. Don't say deplorables. That's a good question. I don't think you could say proles. Proles is much more general, left and right, not uh, just Trump. You know, well, there, are, there are Bernie supporters that are proles. No, uh, there are Bernie supporters that are proles, but they're not cultural proles, or they wouldn't be Bernie supporters. This, uh, this, um, this identification of class stratification with like your bank account is one of the kind of characteristic distortions of, of leftism. It's all about culture, and you know, like uh, if you've ever been a grad student and like some fellow grad student because his like stipend is low is like I'm poor. And it's like, no, you're not poor, you're broke. Um, and, and, and those are just very different things. And so, like, status is, is you know, is a much more important determination of class than salary or, or bank account. Um, and it's definitely a status conflict between, you know, essentially, well, if, you, if you'll allow me to use, you know, Marxist terminology, uh, you have the, the, the professional managerial class, uh, the proles, and what Marx would call the lumpen proletariat. Um, and um, so there's a sort of alliance of the ruling class and the, the lumpen proletariat, um, which is basically the Democratic Party. <laughs> you could call it that. Um, and um, um, the I really hate using these like code words, um, you know, like they just become inflammatory. Um, and, um, you know, it's like, um, you know, at least you said Democratic Party. If you said Democrat Party, that would have meant you were on Fox News. Right. Um, and. Um, uh, my stepfather is is a uh, longstanding uh, Hill staffer on the on the Democratic side. Uh, if you want to get him to explode at dinner, just say Democrat Party, um, and <laughs> which obviously I would never do. And but the thing is, my point is that basically, if anything is ever going to actually work in this country, it's basically can only be as an alliance of all three of these classes. You cannot imagine any successful government that is like a government of like one over the others. And, and so one of the, um, you know, for me, kind of the big political historical question is, um, you know, to just take a really grand scope, um, are we in the late Roman Republic or the late Roman Empire? So if we're in the late Roman Empire, we're absolutely completely fucked. Um, and there are certainly many kind of parallels that you can draw between, for example, the intellectual class that Justin was part of and, like, the grammarian ruling class of the late Roman Empire. Um, you know, uh, you might have seen this class kind of parodied in a certain Monty Python movie. Um, and, um, um, you know, really, like, just completely worthless people, um, but very well-educated um, and just useless against the Huns or whatever. Um, and um, Or are we in the late Roman Republic? 
And that's a very optimistic, you know, most people are like, oh, my God, it's like the late Roman Republic. I'm like, that's actually the optimistic perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things about the Roman Republic, if you know, like, the kind of kindergarten version of the Roman Republic, you know that the whole history of the Republic is this conflict between, uh, first it's the plebeians and patricians, then those categories kind of become obsolete, and it's the optimates versus the... Um, 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 Oh, God. Um, popularis, right? Um, and which is basically uh, optimatis versus popularis is Bernie versus Trump. It's as simple as that. Um, and, um, and you're like, okay, how does this work out? It's true that they have some civil wars. Uh, I don't believe the civil war is possible today, which is another very optimistic perspective, uh, which I will defend. Um, um, but I just don't believe in violent politics at all. Um, and... Um, uh, which is very optimistic. Um, but the um, the outcome of this is even more optimistic, which is that it kind of magically ends up um, with Augustus, the first Roman Empire, previously Octavian. And um, Augustus is actually a success. And one of the features of the Roman Empire is that this whole conflict between red states and blue states, popularis and optimatis, whatever, this whole civil conflict, which had been part of the fabric of the Roman Republic for 400 years, something like that, not an expert here, disappears. It's gone. It's never heard of again. So, you know, if you could imagine basically an America in which there's no, like, red state, blue state conflict, no, like, race war, like, none of this garbage, like, you know, okay, what would you trade for that? I think a lot of people would trade, like, you know, I think a lot of people would be ready to make, you know, pretty large sacrifices for that. So in a way, like, you Wait, know. So what w- happened exactly? How did that come about? Uh, Augustus. Have you heard of the guy? Yeah, heard of him. But <laughs> r- of course, I know everything you're talking about. But for our audience, uh, you know, <laughs> please, 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 r- please remind them of uh, a few of the details. Uh, okay. Well, um, quick let's ru- see. A quick rundown, uh, if you will. Um you know, um, maybe in Roman history, like Trump versus Bloomberg is like Marius versus Sulla. Um, um, so essentially what happens is is one side wins the Civil War. and and um, But the side that wins the Civil War is not really, you know, it's like Caesar, who's the one who actually wins. And Caesar and Augustus have much the same plans. Um, Caesar just wasn't really careful about his personal security. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> the... Um, 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 the um um but they were basically both they both had the style of unifiers and 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 they were and by the way they didn't claim to have abolished the republic at all they claimed to have restored and fixed the republic you know they were just the first citizen of the republic um and it you know the uh, everything was voted on by the senate of course the senate was a rubber stamp um you know but it, you know they never restored the title of rex uh, of the title of king, which was an old Roman, you know, title. Um, you know, the last kings of Rome were driven out in like 500-something B.C., right? So they're like, we have saved the Republic, but what we've, we've created in practice is effectively a monarchy. Um, so in, in some ways, Augustus is actually more like FDR than you might think. Um, and so, you know, if you let's imagine like, you know, Bloomberg doing a new New Deal um, and, uh, you know, like it's a ridiculous, yeah, it could never happen. But, uh, you know, the thing is that, you know, um, um, Augustus's Rome, like FDR's Washington, was a startup nation. 
because it was under the absolute control of this guy, Augustus, who was absolutely competent and completely effective and had no interest in continuing any of these squabbles. So there's this great story. It's about Caesar rather than Augustus. Um, and um, I think it sort of expresses the kind of attitude that's kind of necessary in creating kind of anything new and awesome. Of course, you know, you're nothing happens without not violence but force. So, you know, Caesar's force comes from the popularis. He is originally a man of the popularis. So, you know, he fights the civil war and he's fighting against Cato. Um, and Cato is like, everyone super respects Cato. Cato is like, imagine like some like really old line, you know, Democrat who like really believes in the process and really believes in the Republic. It's not cynical at all. You know, this is a person who is just completely believes in the system. That's Cato. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, Cato gets beat. Um, and, um, you know, he does this very Roman thing. He commits seppuku, actually. He does this, like, Japanese suicide ritual um, and actually cuts his, his, his belly with his sword and, like, tears his own intestines out. Um, and, um, the, and his slaves tries to push them back in, and he tears them back out again. Super gory. Um, and would make a great movie. Um, and um, so Cato is beaten, right? And, but Caesar basically captures Cato's headquarters. And in Cato's tent, there's a big chest, and the chest is full of letters, from his supporters in Rome. So one of the things that about these, these conflicts in Roman history, and you see this extensively in kind of the, the, pre, um, the preludes to the, that final civil war between like Marius and Sulla, um, is a, something called proscription. And that idea of proscription is when you win one of these contests, contests you basically are like, okay, who are the wealthy supporters of the other side? We are going to kill them and take their property and give it to our friends. I think Sanders supporters are getting excited listening to you. Say yeah, that. right, right. So, you know, imagine if, like, Trump wins the election, he throws Soros in jail, he takes all of Soros's money and redistributes it to, like, megatards, right? Um, <laughs> if you'll excuse my French. Uh, you know, so uh, yeah, this would be a very aggressive action uh, by Donald Trump, uh, but that was absolutely normal in Roman politics. Mm. So basically, um, completely normal expected thing to do. So, um, um, you know, Caesar's guys uh, basically find this chest, and they're like, holy shit, you won't believe what we found. Because we're like, this is the mother load. Because, of course, a lot of these motherfuckers would write letters to both sides. They'd be like, Cato, man, you're the one. You're really strong. You know, you have these Roman values. And then they'd be like, Caesar, oh, my God, you're so Caesar. Right, you know, and, and um, so they'd, they'd write the same letter to both sides. So, you know, these are the people that you really want to find because these are not your guys, right? You can't trust them. And you really want to kill them and take their property. Um, and then there are the guys who are just against you, and you definitely want to kill them and take their property. So, um, you know, Caesar's guys are super hot to trot, right? And they're like, what do we do? How do we start working through this? He's like, Caesar's like, okay, take the chest of letters, put it on a bunch of logs, pour olive oil on it, and set it on fire. And the guys are like, what? Caesar's like, you don't get it. Like, motherfuckers, we won. We won. They're all our guys now. And so, you know, the, um, um, that sense of basically they're all our guys now, you know, is basically essential to anything that actually works. Um, and so, you know, that's obviously, you know, very far from this vision of, you know, peasants with red hot pitchforks, you know, visiting, uh, you know, uh, the University of uh, Southampton, I guess, to, uh, you know, uh, basically toss you on their, your, their devilish 
burning tines. Um, and um, it's it's the ap- absolute opposite, but it also doesn't mean, you know, we must, you know, hound and harry the peasants and, uh, you know, uh, basically get go full Spartan on them. Um, and, you know, which is really, I think, in many ways, the attitude of not necessarily the, you know, there's definitely... I don't know when I say go full Spartan. One of the things the Spartan elite like to do um, is basically if you were like a young Spartan, like, you know, ruling class, like, you know, like Chapa dude or whatever, uh, you would basically imagine if like Chapa dudes like had like secret Chapa parties where they went and like just found like drove out to the suburbs and found like some like MAGA dude with like a MAGA sign in front of his hat and just house and just like burned his house down and killed him. Um, um, that would be like the Spartan way of being a ruling class. Right. And, you know, I think there's people that like to do that, um, and um, um, I'm very confident of it. Um, and so that, like, you know, that mentality is a very dark and evil mentality, which in a way very much parallels the mentality of the average school shooter today. Um, you know, and I can say average school shooter because, frankly, there's a lot of them. And so you kind of see this kind of, you know, like these pathological phenomena emerging out of this conflict. And I think it's a very pathological conflict. Mm. And I'm certainly, I mean, you know, these are very, you know, banal sentiments. Everybody's going to agree with that. Nobody's going to agree with basically how you get out of it. But Right. No, that's interesting. So what I want to do in just a minute is open it up to audience questions shortly. Um, but if you have just a little bit more steam, Curtis, I thought I'd maybe ask you one or two more questions. Sure. And specifically, I'd like to ask you about some of the bigger ideas in your writings. I don't think there's any really big ideas. I don't. Well, think, I don't really have any ideas at all, actually. Well, uh, I'll, I can ask you, and then you can you, you can answer sure. that. You can, if that's how you'd like to answer, you're more than welcome to. Because we've talked a lot up until now about debunking various ideas on the left and the right, and I think you're very good at that. But if one reads your blog, Unqualified Reservations, closely, and there's a lot of it to read, but I have read most of it, one does see certain big ideas, more positive ideas, I think, more positive I, I, visions. I, I, I disagree very strongly. I think that um, the really important content there is is purely negative. It's basically, um, you know, the most important thing is is an absence of belief. Uh, you know, there are probably some positive ideas behind it, but um, well, you should really focus on the absence of belief. Well, let me give you an example. And while I'm asking you just one or two questions about what I see as the more the bigger positive ideas in your in your writing, the audience, you all should be thinking about good questions to ask if you're interested to ask any. Uh, and I'll turn to you in just a minute. So one would be formalism, for instance. Right. This is how you describe your political philosophy in in. in in, in one word, I think it's kind of the most efficient way you, you describe your political philosophy. And if I understand it correctly, I'll give people just a very quick and dirty summary of the idea. And you can clarify if you need to or, or what have you. But uh, and I want to ask you about it. Uh, the way I understand it is pretty much Curtis seems to be of the viewpoint that one of the biggest problems in uh, especially American politics today is a, uh, a bad mapping between the actual distribution of power and how how power is actually acknowledged or 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 formalized or labeled Th- that the where power actually exists is distributed and messy and no one's really honest about it whereas the idea of formalism is that if we could simply uh account rigorously for who has power and where power is had and that's done formally in a way that's rigorous that this would solve a lot of problems perhaps sure so so you know yeah to i i think that's that's pretty much mostly right um I would recommend uh, if anyone out there likes uh, likes books, um, 
one of the great, uh, possibly the greatest work of political science in the 20th century is a book called The Machiavellians by a writer named James Burnham. It's not his most famous book, but it's his best book. Uh, Burnham was, um, he was originally a Trotskyist, of all things, um, and like many Trotskyists, um, you know, he found himself uh, a right-winger. Uh, maybe the world moved under him. Maybe he moved, maybe both. Uh, he wrote this wonderful book called The Machiavellians, which is a summary of um, what's called the, um, in English, of what's called the, sometimes called the Italian School of Political Science, uh, which is over 100 years old, and um, it's classic. It's great figure, really. A guy on a par with Newton and Darwin, in my mind, is a guy named Gaetano Mosca, who's completely unknown. Uh, he wrote a book called Elements of Political Science, which somehow got it the English title of Theory of the Ruling Class. Um, uh, I think of it as Elements of Political Science because that's actually its title. Uh, if you just read Burnham's very incisive summary of it, that basically gives the basic idea that Justin was just trying to express, which is essentially that many, in fact, most political systems in the real world have this divergence between formal power like how the system is actually supposed to work and objective power as in terms of who's actually in charge. It's like, you know, a very simple way to think about this is like Elizabeth II. So Elizabeth II has, you know, kind of nominal authority. Actually, she can veto legislation. Most people didn't know that. She has the same power as the president. She can veto an act of parliament. The last time an English monarch vetoed an act of parliament, 1707, I think, under Queen Anne. Um, so, you know, but so in theory, she has it just like in theory, Donald Trump can tell the Justice Department who to prosecute and who not to prosecute. But in practice, that would be taken as a gross violation. Um, and so the reality of power and the formal, you know, like the formal legal reality of power are, and the objective reality of power have become diverged. And that's very, very common historically. Uh, the emperor of Japan has not been the emperor of Japan for over a thousand years. Um, um, I think something that might not be clear to people or not obvious to people is why is this such a problem and why would formalizing that distribution of power be so good? When you formalize the distribution of power, because basically one of the, the, the main benefit for the powerful of this divergence between appearance and reality is that when the reality is powerless and basically symbolic, uh, when the appearance is powerless and basically symbolic, then the reality is unaccountable because no one thinks of it as an organ with power. And this is especially effective if it's decentralized. So like any oligarchy. So there's a great example under, um, in, um, you know, seventh century France of the, um, the Merovingian and the Carolingian, um, kings. So the Merovingian dynasty are like these, like, you know, long-haired barbarians who conquer, you know, Gal, you know, Roman Gaul, and um, establish themselves as king. And of course, originally they're they're badasses. They're like Germanic warriors, right? Um, and um, but over time, they come to develop a taste for civilization, and they basically turn into um, uh, the French word. I'm going to. I can't speak French, is coiffonnant, which means do-nothing king, literally. So these kings who are like, you know, uh, you know, Clovis the fourth or fifth or sixth or whatever become these like, like Elizabeth II. Unusually, however, the force holding real power is the mayor of a figure called the mayor of the palace, who was originally just a permanent bureaucrat. He's basically the deep state of Merovingian France. Um, but the deep state of Merovingian France is actually a monarchy. Imagine if the deep state had a boss. There was like a chief deep state person. Like that would be the mayor of the palace, right? And so eventually the mayor of the palace is just like, fuck it, I'm running things. And literally, what does the king do? 
I, literally, I like bring him out in an ox cart every six months to read a speech I wrote. Fuck this. It's over. It's done. He's not the king anymore. Um, I'm the king. And this is how, this is the origin of Charlemagne. You've heard of Charlemagne. There's a rapper, I think, with that. that. (laughs) Um, um, This is the origin of Charlemagne, right? And so basically here you see actually a real monarchy and a shadow monarchy at the same time. And the great thing about being the mayor of the palace is like it's like being the deep state. You're completely unaccountable, which is absolutely great Uh, if you're you, right? Um, And so in a sense, essentially, um, you might remember originally that I said that this country was not a democracy and I didn't think it should be a democracy. Um, You have this very, very, you know, these very unaccountable permanent structures, some of which are in the formal government and some of which are outside of it. So here's another example. Suppose you basically, you're like, okay, there's this thing called the mainstream media, you might have heard that term on like Breitbart or something. Um, you know, uh, um, you know, to someone who's part of it, of course, you wouldn't say that. You would just say the press, the free, the free press, right? Um, and when you look at this free press, you're like, okay, I can identify that certain institutions are part of the press and certain are not. Like, what does it mean to be a journalist? Is that a formal title? Do I go, like get in on my like airline tickets? Do I say you know J instead of Mister as a journalist? Uh, no, but yet there's some sense in which it's official. There's some sense in which the New York Times is official. Well, you know, without really changing the way the New York Times operates, you could say, we're going to take the Times, uh, you know, and the Post, and we're going to call them part of the federal government. They're not going to change the way they operate at all. We're just going to call them the Department of Information, and we're going to call them paper number one and paper number two. Um, And then they're going to, instead of thinking themselves as public servants, they'll be civil servants, have exactly the same immunity, have exactly the same free access to government secrets, which they then sell to the public. And you're like, not only is the Department of Information clearly a real part of the government, it's actually the most powerful part of the government. It's actually completely unaccountable. And you know what else is cool about the New York Times? Um, You know, I was having this uh, discussion confidentially with a journalist who should not be named, um only talk to journalists off the record. Um, and um, I was like, you know, there's a difference between Jeff Bezos's relationship to the Washington Post um, and the Salzberger's family's relationship to the New York Times. Because Arthur Salzberger, Punch, or whatever the fuck they call him, is actually part of the news desk. If he tells the journalists, hey, I think, or the editors, hey, I think you need to steer things in this direction or that direction, they'll listen to him. If Jeff Bezos tells the Post, oh, I don't think I really like how you're covering this story, you know, you know what the answer of any self-respecting Post journalist is going to be? I quit. I'm going to go work for the New York Times, um, which is a real newspaper. Um, and do you know how the New York Times is governed? How? It's an absolute hereditary monarchy. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Based. <laughs> Yes. All right. Definitely not cringe. So the last question I want to ask you before we turn it off to this very patient audience that has sat. Thank you for sitting through all this ridiculous bullshit. Quietly and and wrapped. Um, Let's talk about soft corps real quick. This is, Uh I think, one of your other big ideas that you're kind of known for. Sort of an old big idea. I mean, both formalism and soft corps are kind of like, as I was writing this, this, um, um, you know, piece, I was... um, you know, as I was writing this blog, of course, I'm 
thinking at the same time. And so some of my kinds of perspectives, I mean, I, I'm, I don't disagree with these ideas at all. I just emphasize them a little differently. Sure. Well, the idea of the soft court, which many people will, you know, remember if they've read your blog is there you go. Take that shot. Oh, sip on the sip on the whiskey. All right. I thought you were going to throw it back. Here, I'll oh, we're, join almost, you. we're almost I'll done. Join here. You might as well. Yeah, we're almost done here. No, we have to take you, shots. You got to get loose for audience questions. All right. That's all, for right sure. all right. All right. Sure is. Skull. The idea of soft corpse, as I understand it, you paint a, a, a portrait of a possible political world in which there's a very, very large number of, of relatively small uh, governance structures or polities. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is sometimes known as patchwork. This is an idea that a lot of people are actually quite interested in right now. This is an idea that a lot of people have separately had independently. Of course, yeah. I'm not saying you invented it or anything, but in your vision of patchwork, there would be a... Uh, a kind of uh, governance structure or a kind of polity in which pretty much the government owns a piece of territory and runs it like a business. This is the way it already works, actually. It's just done really badly. Um, So it's closely related to formalism. Yeah, so, you know, if you imagine... um, one of the things uh, you know I strongly believe in is whenever you're talking about a group or an entity, you should always use the term that that group uses to refer to itself. Um, so in Washington, uh, you know, if you're writing about the U.S. government, uh, you will say either USG or the USG. Either is acceptable. Um, and um, actually, coincidentally, there's a company called USG, United States Gypsum, which is like traded on the <laughs> stock exchange, right? But they're not the same thing. But um, you know, in essence. Um, you know, what you're looking at when you're looking at a government is a corporation that owns a country. Um, it just is. It's the same thing. It's just it sort of has this really strange governance structure. If you can imagine like a, you know, a corporation governed the way the United States is governed. Imagine if Apple was had like a Congress and a Supreme Court. Maybe it had like separation of powers. So like, you know, Congress would be like marketing and like the executive branch would be like engineering and it'd be like you have to separate marketing and engineering and then the Supreme Court is like HR. You know, I mean, you know, you you could imagine uh, <laughs> you could imagine doing it that way, um, but I don't think it would make very good phones. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that's most remarkable about the way people think about you know, politics and democracy today is, uh, you know, probably uh, most people uh, here um, got here in a car. Did you get here in a car? Um, You know, uh, well, who built that car? I'm like, well, there's a very simple answer. That car was built by a monarchy because it was built by a corporation with a CEO who is essentially in absolute control of that organization, yet also accountable. I'll get to that in a second. But, you know, you drive a car. It was built by a monarchy. Um, you eat at a restaurant. It's a monarchy. Anyone ever seen uh, Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares? Amazing show. It's really, it's not about cooking. It's about management. Uh, it's about power and about government. Um, and, you know, my, I, I realize that Gordon Ramsay's not eligible to be president. But, I mean, you know, if you want a reality show president, imagine Gordon Ramsay going through, like, the State Department's fridge. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be like, uh, you're, uh, well, uh, yeah, I see you send $500 million to this guy. Uh, wow. Uh, who is this person? <laughs> what is this doing in this drawer? Uh, you know, so, um, um, you know, you could imagine that very easily, right? And and um, uh, if you've seen the show, it's a very good show. Um, the British one is better. Um, um, but um, that's that's very easy to 
like that once you start seeing that equivalence you're like okay you know i got here in a car built by a monarchy i ate at a restaurant built by a monarchy i stayed at a hotel run by a monarchy um you know i went and sent a letter at a post office Oh, um, you know, um, and so there's this kind of massive contrast that everyone sees. Right. And, it, you know, you could even get, you know, anyone will be like, oh, yeah, a benevolent dictatorship is the best you know, form of government. But how do you make sure it stays benevolent? As though this is like a question that can't be answered. And I'm like, no, actually, I think that's a very interesting question. Maybe it does have an answer. Um, and so, you know, the concept of. And the answer is to uh, make them compete. The answer is. uh the answer is, I, I would say, as generally as possible. If you look at what, you know, your car, you know, your restaurant and, um, you know, Elizabethan England have in common, um, they are all what I would call accountable monarchies. And so, you know, let's take Augustus. We talked about Augustus earlier. Like, Augustus saved Rome. Everyone in Augustus's Rome is just like, oh, my God, I'm so glad that was over. I could never even imagine it being over, and yet it's over. This is wonderful. That is the unanimous sentiment. Augustus is, you know, a supremely competent dude. Uh, he does fine. Augustus' successor is Tiberius. Mm, there's some questions about Tiberius. <laughs> you know, he has this weird you know, episode with Sejanus. After Tiberius comes a name that you might recognize, Caligula. After Caligula, you get Claudius, who's kind of a, a nerdy weirdo. After Claudius, you get... Nero, right? And so, in a way, when people think about monarchies, you know, um, you know, that wasn't quite a hereditary monarchy. It had weird things going on. Hereditary monarchies can have this just, like, monstrous failure mode where it's like Henry VI. Shakespeare wrote two Henry VI plays. You had an incompetent king of England. It resulted in the Wars of the Roses, massive devastation, right? And so, you know, and anyone, even if you're like Steve Jobs, you're like this amazing, like, king of Apple, right? You know, Apple succeeded because Apple is sort of more truly a monarchy than any other corporation. And because of that, it made the most amazing phones. And, and they've, they've kept that up even without Jobs. Uh, you know, but, you know, suppose Steve Jobs, instead of getting a pancreatic tumor, gets a brain tumor. He goes nuts. He's like, <laughs> no, your next phone has to be big. <laughs> big. I want a big phone, right? <laughs> you know, um, 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 he goes nuts, and who's who can say no? No, we can't sell a phone that is the size of an easel, right? You know, <laughs> and and no one no one has the right or the power to tell him that, and so he has to be accountable. And so, in a way, one of the kind of tragedies of the modern democratic form of government. One thing most people don't know about the title of president. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. I hope I'm not wrong. But even if I'm wrong, it's a good story. President is actually originally, you know, it's used as a corporate title and a political title. You imagine that the corporate title is like a copy of the political title. Not so. It was actually a corporate title before it was a political title. And one of the things about the Puritans who basically founded the Republic, they were very experienced in forming like trading companies and so forth. And so the idea of kind of the Congress being in a way kind of like a board of directors in a sense to whom the CEO is accountable is kind of – it's like almost there in the Constitution, but it's not there. So we have this shit show, right? Um, um, but it's kind of almost there. And, you know, the modern corporation hadn't really even been invented by the time – you know, it's sort of there were these kind of prototypical things, but you know, you get the real modern joint stock corporation in the 19th century, and um, I'm so crazy. I actually think the Industrial Revolution was actually the corporate revolution, 
very unpopular mm-hmm. belief, right? You know, because basically people learn how to operate in these effective, these structures that were like states, essentially, but they were like secondary states under the main states. And it was like, you look at like Amazon, uh, Amazon's like 500,000 employees or something, you know, that's enough to govern the world, mm. right? And that, you know, is is accountable to this one guy, Jeff Bezos, and like, it's not just he's not just a figurehead like it really you know Bezos is like a jobs like figure in some ways mm-hmm. right and so that's kind of the ideal of monarchy uh, and then of course you have Caligula and Nero so so in your model then in an ideal world the United States government would be the distribution of power would be fully formalized we would turn it into essentially a joint stock corporation in which the power holders would be shareholders in a corporation. And then uh, well, that corporation would run the country or run the territory there's for a profit. Crucial, there's actually there's a there's a crucial mistake that you're making, I think, and and this is a an over like uh, this is why I don't really use that terminology anymore because you know what you're saying is right, but it's also wrong. Okay. Um, and um, you know the way in which it's wrong is it has this kind of mechanical. It's sort of almost. I think a lot of, you know, the only reason I would recommend not reading my old blog is that I think a lot of the material in it in some ways was kind of designed to be as kind of harsh and off-putting and difficult as possible, mm. um, you know, which was just kind one, of... One notices that right away, I think. Which was, yeah, it was just kind of juvenile of me. It's and what makes it fun, though. And I would, well, I for one would definitely recommend you read Curtis's blog. Fine. Um, and and um, 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 the, uh, you know, part of the problem is that this is my free content and I want to write a book that's going to compete with this. Um, and um, it's just it's just a sheer matter of the grift, Justin. Um, and, oh, um, I get it. Um, I get it. You know, like real artists grift. Um, and and the, um, you know, Samuel L. Johnson, Samuel, not Samuel L. Johnson, Samuel Johnson. Um, um, the um, you, you can see I, sh- I shouldn't have knocked back that shot. Uh, Samuel Johnson. No, uh, we you definitely know, should have. I'm Samuel glad Johnson, uh, you know, said, uh, you know, only only a fool wrote for anything but money. Uh, in that case, I'm definitely a fool. Um, and... Um, the um so yeah so so in a way the way you stated it is stated in a in a relatively in a way that's sort of both off putting and wrong and and one of the things about one of the things most people like they even people who are like you know, like, say, business school professors. And I do know one or two business school, prof- well, at least one business school professor. And and even people who are business school professors are basically in some ways think of the way corporate governance works in the wrong way because they're like the shareholders govern the corporation. The reality is having actually been the CEO of a motherfucking corporation, the reality is the CEO is um, – is completely in charge but completely accountable to the board. I was my own board, so it was a little different. But if you actually have a board, if you're so unlucky as to actually have a board, you're accountable to that board. But the thing is, if the board gets involved in the governance of your corporation, something is completely fucked. And if the shareholders get involved, something is profoundly fucked and your corporation is almost certain not to survive. Or, like, either your corporation is not going to survive or you are not going to survive. And that is the only reason why shareholders would get involved in, like, shareholder democracy. And so when you think – when you look at this structure of, like, the shareholders and the board, it's not a management structure. It's not a power structure. It's not actually micromanaging – like, the board of Apple is not – was never second-guessing Steve Jobs' decisions. Right. It fired Steve Jobs once. 
it was probably prepared to fire again, fire him again. And it would have fired him if he'd gotten a brain tumor and started selling phones the size of a fucking window. You know, um, um, and, but it didn't need to do that. And, and it shouldn't have done that. And so Steve Jobs was accountable. And the thing is, the mechanism he was accountable to, because it was not actually governing the company, was not actually corrupted by power. Because it was not wielding power. It was just a backup safety mechanism. And so the accountability structure in, in, a, in an accountable monarchy is a backup system. It's not actually sort of in power. It's just like, oh, yeah, if things get fucked up, we'll fix it. Makes sense? Makes sense to me. What do you all think? Ladies and gentlemen, Curtis Yarvin. All right. Man. Thank you for uh, thank you for coming by and experiencing this bullshit. Uh, you know, um, thank you, you Curtis. Questions? You know, they, they say the masses don't. They say the masses have short attention spans that they don't want long form intellectual how long content. Was that? How long was that? I don't even know. I went into a wormhole. Was that three hours? How long was it? Two. Okay, two's no, yeah, not yeah, that bad. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, everyone, for your patience. I hope you enjoyed that. Now let's make this a raucous, you know, vox populi uh, segment. I want to now invite people to ask Wait, questions. Do, do I need to get my weapons out of the car? No, I don't think there are any. I don't think there are going to be any pitchforks here. I think we're good. Uh, but you know, uh, challenging questions. Uh, people should feel free. You know, yeah. don't don't hold back. Don't be shy. Anything nonviolent is fair game. Anything nonviolent is fair game. Uh, so raise your hand. Go first. Just shout it out. I think this isn't going to reach to everyone. You sat so. in the middle of the front row, so you could do that. <laughs> we will re- we will repeat your question when we answer it. Okay, great. Uh, Curtis. Let me uh, say, uh, first of all, thank you, Justin, for organizing this. Uh, I think that the only way to have uh, Moldbug on as a guest speaker is to be called left at this point. But uh, I want to say, uh, Moldbug, thank you for coming and, and, and uh, expressing yourself. You spoke about distance. You spoke about um, you know people who are going to get their houses burned down with Molotov cocktails if they say the wrong thing, and you identify with this group of people. Nobody knows where I live. Thankfully. <laughs> but how, how does, how does uh, people, and I, I had the chance to speak to a few of these leftists here, uh, they, they, they ask, who is Moldbug? And I say, Moldbug is the last stand before you get your house burned down, even though you probably will get your house burned down. But he's Thank you for that. Wow. He's the last guy who's like, okay, well, somebody might defend him to say, you know, he's not that bad, which is how Justin described you as not that bad, which I thought was a, a cock-out, because, like, Oh, whatever. Justin, just you know, frankly, yeah, Justin is still growing. I think Justin is doing great things. But my, my, my pro with Justin is like, why would you describe somebody as not that bad? Like, this, you know. So how would you describe before that bad? That's my question. Can I, can I, can I answer that? Uh, even though it's addressed to Justin? No, it's for you. It's for you. How do you describe the person beyond Moldbug? That's the question. Is he, is he the, 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 X, the X factor? Who? The thing is, you're, you, have this, you have this dimensional, um, you know, perception. And, um, you know, in a way, um, you know, what I kind of want to tell you uh, is you need to abandon your linear Western way of thinking. Um, Wait, and, him or me? Well, everyone. Okay. <laughs> um, um, but you definitely need to abandon your, liber- uh, you know, uh, your, your, your linear Western way of thinking. Uh, you know, let me, um, um, you know, give you a brief example of that. You know, I said earlier that, um, you know, it's, it's very frightening to talk about World War II. Let me talk about World War II for a second. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, I was in a... Um, That's uh, such a Moldbuck thing to say. Um, uh, you know, I was in a, um, about a couple of years ago, um, 
I was um, in a car, uh, went to visit some right-wing personality whose name I won't mention, um, in a car with another right-wing personality whose name I won't mention. And um, on the way back, uh, we fell to uh, talking about um, World War II. Um, and, um, um, you know, I said to this guy, I was like, you know, in Nuremberg, the Nazis were charged with um, two great crimes. One of them was um, plotting to take over the world, and the other one was the uh, mass murder of the, uh, well, actually, people didn't really think of it in ethnic terms at that time, so they just said thought crimes against humanity. The idea of the Holocaust, you know, is sort of from the 1970s, um, and it was like, actually, don't get me wrong, it was like a realization of the truth in the 1970s, but the truth that actually the Holocaust was Jew-specific was actually politically incorrect in the 1940s. If you don't believe me, you can go and watch a wonder, go on YouTube and watch a wonderful little film called Hitler Lives, 1945, directed by Don Siegel, who later directed Dirty Harry, script by Theodore Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss. Uh, it is an anti-German propaganda film. It is fucking weird. Dude, uh, that's, um, the, that's the biggest red pill of the night right it there. It is fucking Holy weird. Shit. It is just I don't even weird. know what you're talking it about, but I'll weird. look into it. It is just weird. It shows you, like, you know, horrors of the Nazis that are absolutely true and genuine, and it does not use the word Jew ever. So you're saying in the 40s it was politically incorrect to say that the Holocaust was all about the Jews? That's correct. Uh, they, in the, the word Holocaust was not used at that time. Um, huh. Far from and, – and so in a way, like, we need part, a of, part of, like, modern, you know, Nazi propaganda is basically, um, you know, the Holocaust is World War II propaganda. And I'm like, no one who had any idea of World War II propaganda would ever say that. You have no clue. So I'm in this car, basically, you know, I'm like <laughs> – I know more about Hitler than you've forgotten. Uh, I've forgotten more about Hitler than you know. Sorry, another <laughs> too many shots. Uh, you know, so I'm 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 talking to this this uh, you know person who, as you might say, you know, had gone too far, and I'm basically like, um, you know, in uh, in at Nuremberg, uh, the Nazis were charged with two great crimes. One of them was plotting to take over the world, and the other one was uh, crimes against humanity, and they were absolutely guilty of one of these crimes and absolutely not guilty of the others. And, you know, this guy's like, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, they were definitely plotting to take over the world, but the Holocaust is totally fake. I'm like, dude, you got to absolutely flip around. <laughs> um, and there's this great Wikipedia page, which is called like Nazi offensive plans controversy. And it was like sort of devoted to the question, which of course, Historians have studied the Nazis like ad infinitum, right? They know more about the Nazis than like a proctologist like knows about your colon, right? You know, and 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 um um you know like we know we have all their files except for the ones they burned. We know everything about the Nazis, and basically everything we know, everything you learn in school about the Nazis is absolutely true. Like historians have a very basically a perfect understanding of the Third Reich, contrary to Nazi belief, um and um. In this perfect understanding, which, of course, is faithfully reflected in Wikipedia, you can go to Wikipedia. I believe the title is, like, Nazi Offensive Plan Strategy or whatever. And you can devote – this page is devoted to, like, what was the Nazi plan to take over the world. And the evidence for the Nazi plan to take over the world on this page is such as, like, Hitler built really big buildings, which is <laughs> characteristic of people who wanted to take over the world, right? You know, and so the thing is, what you'll notice the pattern is here is the truth is not useful to anyone. You know, like, and, and what Nazis do is they're like, if it was really true that the Holocaust never happened, then everything would be really, really simple. I'm like, that's true. 
<laughs> it would be really, really simple. Unfortunately, it's actually really, really complicated. And and yet, you know, the whole story of this these events that we is sort of received history is really just not a true story. But it's not a false story in the obvious ways. It's not a false story in obviously useful ways. You know, if you're like, I mean, any historian who knows the period will agree that, you know, Hitler's fondest lifelong dream was to make an alliance with Great Britain. This is just a historical fact. Mm. No historian disagrees about this. You know, and yet, you know, like, it's not useful. It's not like it doesn't change the story of World War II in a way that's like, you know, like useful to like, oh, we got to establish the white ethno state or some fucking shit. Right. And so, you know, you have this situation where you don't really expect that all perspectives on this enormous event that are held today, all perspectives on World War II that are commonly held today from progressive to Nazi are just not really well correlated with reality. Right. It's it's like the what the Nazis actually did was bad enough, but then they have to also create these other layers of even more extreme evil. Like not only did they kill all these people, but they're also trying to take over the whole world. Well, no, and, and I mean, then it, it has the, this weird effect of like discrediting if you re- and if, creating these spaces if, if for you conspiracy watch, theory. If you watch if you go and watch Hitler Lives, basically the Nazi plan to take over the world is the prominent feature of World War Two propaganda. Like, that's what actually people thought when they were fighting this war. We are fighting a war to keep Hitler from taking over the world. Because American voters wouldn't really give a shit Hitler about, was like, actually what they were doing. Hitler was certainly interested in take over, taking over Eastern Europe. I'll give you that. Um, you know, but, like, it's a long way from there to the Rio Grande. You know, and actually, at the time, at the fall of France, like, if you look and read, like, the New York Times, like, American mainstream thinking around the time of the fall of France is, like, Hitler has conquered France. Therefore, France has colonies in Africa. And therefore, um, um, and it's only a, a little hop from Africa to Brazil. And then once you're in Brazil, the Rio Grande, right? <laughs> you know? And like you'll find, you'll go back in history and you'll find people like revered people like George Marshall selling this theory, right? And, and you're just like, like this war is fought both sides. Like don't, uh, I'm not telling you the Nazis aren't on crack. The Nazis are definitely on crack. The Soviets are also on crack, right? Everybody's on crack. And, you know, the sort of the true history of these events is so dark mm-hmm. and so useless and so grim and so weird right. that nobody wants it. And so, right. in, a, in a way, if, if you're basically looking for useful history, you're not going to find that reality. And yet, in some ways, that reality is actually more useful than these, like, sort of just-so stories. But then people want to produce these moral tales to make it useful for power. And then what ends up happening is that that becomes grist for the mill of actually racist, fascist conspiracy theorists who point to this sort of thing as evidence that it's all a lie. Well, you the know, Holocaust what, didn't really sure. happen. And, and what's, what's happening is that these people are basically, you know, I, I sort of warned people earlier, you know, the thing that's really important not to do is to basically inhabit their caricature of you. And that's exactly what you're doing if you're a Nazi or a white nationalist. I understand that you believe that you're – I'm speaking directly to you now. I understand that you're not in this room. I understand that you believe that you're being, like, uncompromising and, like, super metal. Okay? But they're actually, like – that is a very one-dimensional way to think, and there are actually much more metal ways to be super metal. Um, And and that's – what you're doing is basically, look, like – Honestly, you know, one thing I was saying to a recent, uh, you know, college graduate earlier, I was like, you know, I graduated from Brown in 1992. I think the level of, like, 
you know, um, political energy that people get these days in an average American high school, even a red state high school, is about the same level that we got at Brown in 1992. Brown in 2020, I can't even tell you. Um, um, and um, so people basically are hearing this nonstop, this like strange, these contradictory things. Race exists. Race does not exist. You know, race is all important. There's no such thing as race. Um, you know, we need to welcome immigrants, but we're not replacing the population. You know, just like this strange contradictions. You're just like, this is super weird. Like, and like you get this stuff and it doesn't even make sense. And you're like, okay, what's the opposite of this? <laughs> And that mentality that says, what's the opposite of this? You basically imagine you're like in some session with your like guidance counselor. Or you've said a bad word or something. Your guidance counselor is talking to you and you're just like, I hate this person with every bone in my body. Mm. What is the opposite of this person? Mm. Well, guess what? This person has already told you what the opposite of this person <laughs> is. It's fucking Hitler. So you're like, how, baby? You know, and, and the thing is, you, you have actually failed. That's so true. You have actually failed to exit that frame. That's you are so still true. basically the captive of this guidance counselor. And until you basically are like, no, actually what this person thinks just doesn't matter and isn't related to anything. And actually, I don't know anything. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know anything. Let me find out something. Right. And instead, it's so much easier to say the Holocaust didn't happen. Well, you know, I have news for you. The Holocaust did happen. And <laughs> if you disagree with me, I'm happy to come on your podcast and tell you why you're wrong. And, awesome. um, um, the, um, uh, and so, like, this complicated, real, ugly history is not useful to anyone. And yet, when you hear it and see it, it rings true in a way that these, like, fake cardboard things don't. So it's actually, in a way, more useful. Right on. Right on. Hell yeah. So, all right. We're is that a good enough answer? It was long, but so was your question. Yeah, I love. I I think you're brilliant. I love your long answers, but let's. But I'm, I'm gonna hold you to short answers this time, so we can get. Ma- I want lots of people to be able to talk, express ideas, whatever, raise questions. Uh, who's next? In I think I saw a hand yeah. over here. Uh, yeah. Oh, can do you mind if I? I Everyone will get a turn. Go ahead. Um, I have a question about what you were saying about monarchy. Um, so, thank you for coming today. By the way, I'm a fan. Um, so if inherent to the concept of monarchy is this idea of a shadow monarchy, right? I mean, you agree with that, right? What do you mean by shadow monarchy exactly? I mean as in like a string puller, right? Yes. Yeah, so the string pullers of today, uh, I guess unless you count the Salzburgers, uh, you know, aren't really monarchs so much. Uh, you know, the system, the, you know, may have been established by sort of more centralized powers, but, it, you know, if the New York Times disappeared, everything would be fine. And so the kind of decentralized nature of the string pullers is what makes it very hard to think about them. People want to say the, the New York Times is the, is the primary. Yes. yes. And, and, in, and in fact, if the New York Times disappeared, nothing would change. Um, okay, and and if there's if you agree with the idea that like a true democracy doesn't exist, I obviously agree with that as well. That there are all these string players. <coughs> like, how does that intersect with your idea of what you were saying earlier about like, you know we should be very wary of using the the left right dichotomy, right? Because they do in in one way they're kind of meaningless, and then in another, it's like. I think you said a better way to see left and not right would be through like ethnic groups. How do those two? I think who? I guess what I'm saying is who makes up the monarch and who makes up the shadow monarch. Uh, I I would say I would say broadly, uh, you know, 
yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, broadly, 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 but shortly, um, the tradition of explicit monarchy as represented in, say, Elizabeth I, of whom we still have very fond sort of cultural memories, is um, Elizabeth inherited this world in which there was this conflict between Catholics and Protestants, which was not at all like our present conflict, and there were also different kinds of Protestants, and she absolutely determined to be the queen of everyone. Um, and that nature of kind of, mo of of sort of formal monarchy, of, of like exposed monarchy, because I don't think there can really be a shadow monarchy today. I don't think there are any kind of shadow secret powers that are centralized in any sense. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, Davos or Bilderberg or whatever, uh, you know, or even George Soros. Uh, I don't think that really exists. Um, but when you have a formal explicit monarchy that says, I am in charge and I am responsible for that. You might even, you know, Xi Jinping, who has many faults today in China, um, you know, is still, um, well, let's see how we do with this, how we do with this virus. Um, that monarchy has to express that very, very strong sense of unity. And so the sense in which the monarch is, you know, it's like Queen Mary before Elizabeth, her sister, tried to be the queen of the Catholics over everyone else. That didn't work out very well. And so that sense of unity is really, really important. Um, hopefully that answers some of your questions. Very good and short. Well done, Curtis. Shout, shout, shout out to Queen Mary. You, you want to call someone? Yes. Yeah, on the same uh, topic, I'm wondering, you're talking about um, the people who hold the monarch accountable. Yeah. What prevents them from abusing their Ex power? Uh, excellent question. So, uh, you know, the thing is that what prevents them from abusing their power is that they essentially, when you, when you look at, I mean, you can look at modern corporate governance and basically see how this works. So the board of Apple could very easily abuse its power. But the thing is the board of Apple never gets a taste of power. Like, it's basically like someone who has, you know, if you're not a junkie, like I have a, like a bottle of like, you know, hydrocodone that I got for some prescription, like some surgery, like six years ago in my, you know, cabinet somewhere. If I was a junkie, that shit would be gone, you know? <laughs> and, and so in a way, basically, the reason why you can trust an accountability structure not to be corrupted by power is very simple, that it almost never sees power. But also you don't really know, when you do have power, you, you probably don't necessarily know that you have it. Because it's like this, this, the, well, how do you know, it's like an, an infinitum. Sure. Yeah, it's like the who watches the Watchmen, you know, question. And the, the answer is basically the people who watch the Watchmen need to have full-time lives doing something else. Hmm. Who else? You want to call on someone? Oh, I got it. Yeah. All right, Nick. Yeah, so this is a question for, for both of you. I'm, I'm very curious about patchwork, but I'd like to bring it down a little bit from the theory into something more real. So this is an open question to both of you. If you guys were, if you were CEO king of your own patchwork, city, colony, country, whatever, what would that look like? So, I'm so, going to defer on this one. It's all you because I'm not so trying to be there, CEO or king of it. I'm, I'm definitely not. I'm a ter I was a CEO once. Uh, you know, I, I gave the job to someone else. But um, um, the um, 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 I would say there's. I mean, there's a huge amount of wisdom on this subject. It all just all dates to before the 20th century. Um, you know, if you if you want me to. Um, 
get the sort of shortest summary of that a wisdom. There's this great Latin phrase, "Salus populi suprema lex," which means the health of the people is the supreme law. Kind of more relevant maybe now than at other times, or more literal now than at other times. Um, you know, but it means sort of health in the broadest sense. It means what uh, Thomas Carlyle called the condition of England. Um, you know, and um, you know that's a very different question than like, are we maximizing GDP? For example, um, it's a very different question. Actually, maximizing GDP in a sense, you're saying, you know, consumption is the greatest good. It's like luxus populi suprema lex, um, and popular luxury is the supreme law. That's what you mean when you say we're going to maximize GDP. And when you're basically saying we're going to maximize the health of the people, it's like, you know, look at the health of the American people. Look at the health of basically anywhere that isn't like here. Like, you know, anywhere that isn't San Francisco, L.A., or, like, you know, and you'll just go, I mean, the amount of just, like, deserted, ruined America. Ever taken, like, a train down the Acela Corridor? It's just, like, ruins nonstop down that whole train corridor, um, you know, between Boston and New York. Uh, Boston and, and certainly New York and, and D.C. Um, and so you're, like, basically, when I look very abstractly at this country, I see a country in very poor condition. I see a lot of ruins. I see a lot of ruined physicality. I see a lot of ruined human beings. I see, like, this country's fucked, right? But the GDP is, is great. GDP is going up. Well, it's interesting because yet again, this is like the fifth time I'll flag. This is a, a weird convergence with left wing talking points, right? Like be, there's a left wing critique. It shouldn't be all about growth. It shouldn't be all about money, man. It shouldn't be all about GDP. It should be about larger, more important values such as the, such as health. Right. So I'm just flagging this. I just think it's interesting. Any other questions? We got one here. Yeah. So uh, money system. Um, is it. Uh, Adam Smith talks about the, the invisible hand sure, guiding, sure. guiding the market. Um, so it seems to me that's that's an exemplar of uh, government without government. An informal system. Would would you formalize it? I would say when when you look at you know Adam Smith is very much part of this kind of British uh, you know Enlightenment from um, you know the 18th century, and one of the things that those people love to come up with is essentially kind of decentralized, kind of centerless systems. And, um, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand is very, very beautiful. And, um, you know, it's sort of the beauty of that struck the people who understood the kind of everything before Adam Smith is basically what's called mercantilism, um, which is basically the economic theories of Xi Jinping. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if you want to go to, like, you know, go to, you know, um, um, Detroit and then go to Shanghai and you can tell me how those systems compete because one of them is run according to Adam Smith and the other one is, is run according to pre-Adam Smith. Um, and so people are looking for these kind of autonomous, invisible hands and in a way they're the exception that proves the rule because there are certain situations under which they function very, very well. They're very, very useful tools, but they're not really a replacement for an actual government. All right, excellent. I want to call for some crazy questions. Give me something crazy. Sure. Like, well, you've all been so patient listening. We've been very serious. We've been professional. We've covered all the important stuff. But uh, give me something challenging, something crazy and difficult and weird. We, we're, dude, we're doing shots up here. We've already talked about Hitler and shit. Like, <laughs> let's, get, let, let's, get, let, let's, let's take this up a notch. You know, this is time. We've all been drinking. Let's, like, let's take it up. What do you but got? We're still recording. Who's got something good? Yeah. 
Uh, fuck, marry, or kill. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Robespierre, Kant, and Saad. Wow. wow. Um, all men, um, all um, men. So. Yeah, no, I'm, you know, I, uh, I'm, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, more, uh, more abstractly than concretely a believer in gay marriage, but, um, you know, uh, I'm going to have to go with Kant and Robespierre and Saad can, uh, you know, marry each other and go to hell together. Uh, <laughs> what else you got? Yeah. Michael, is it? Michael. So roughly imagining, you know, looking at the political spectrum right now, Bernie versus Trump, populism on the rise. The next 10 years, I imagine polarization, upheaval seems to be kind of inevitable on the larger scale. And so I think you should think of it as kind of but I, I feel more radical ideas aren't going to be so much off the table even beyond what's currently people are getting deranged about hell yeah on the table so hell yeah how yeah. well, do you know, see where we should proceed in this way where Bannon I feel is the only one who's really taking a vision towards the future on the main stage yeah I'll, I mean uh, yeah I I want to say that um, media has reported that I am no Steve Bannon. I do not actually know Steve Bannon. You don't? No, I don't. I've oh. never interacted with him or met him at all, as far as I'm aware. He I think he's pretty no based, alien. honestly. i got to admit uh, that. You know, That's uh, like my guilty um, uh, Well, my guilty as, soon, as soon as he was he was falsely reported as being connected with me, I, I could not you know have any interest in him anymore. Um, but, um, um, but uh, you know, the, I, the idea, I mean, you know, like, sure, le let's be Leninist, right? Um, I don't know. I think the thing that's nice about Bernie versus Trump or whatever is that you know there's a sort of mask off quality to both of them, um, or like mask half off or something, um, and so you're like the reason why Trump and Bernie. I'm still hoping Bernie wins out. You know, let's uh, let's see what happens. But um, you know, you're rooting for Bernie over Trump. Uh, well, I'm rooting for Bernie over um, you know um, Biden and Buttigieg. And, Based. Uh, yeah, definitely for Bernie. Um, and that's interesting. Well, you know, you that's know, interesting. I mean, you know, Bernie. Bernie. Uh, I don't you know, think many people would predict that. Bernie. Got, he, he has. I, I can't really do this, but uh, you know, I've had too many shots. But you know, <laughs> he has. He has. He has the same accent as my grandfather. You know. You know. It's like. You know, <laughs> my 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 grandparents actually met. They met. Um. They my my grandmother, my grandma and grandpa actually met. Uh. At a communist party meeting in the 1930s, uh, and you know uh, the last conversation I ever had with my grandmother before she fell down the stairs and Juilliard and broke her head, as I was like, "Did you and was it true that you and Grandpa met at a communist party meeting?" Uh, you know, and um, she's like, "Oh no, 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 no! That was the, that was the American League for Peace and Freedom." You know, well, you know, my grandmother doesn't know that Google exists. You know, <laughs> 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 so you know, very, very readily of you know seen as a communist front, right? But what's so amazing about that period is that and it's nothing to do with being a blogger or anything. They would not even admit to their own grandson that they were part of the party. I only know this from my parents. Wow, really? And they were they were in the party from the 30s through the 70s. I have my father's, like, World War II letters home from, like, Germany where he's fighting in the infantry to my grandmother. They're, like, mainly about, like, like party stuff. Um, and I'm like, tell me some war stories, Grandpa. Huh. You know, but no, he's like, oh, he's like, the correct line is, like, you know. And, and um, so, I mean, this is a really, really deep American thing, right? This is not, like, a fringe thing. This is, you know... The experience of American communism, which is part of Bernie's heritage, whether he wants to talk about it or not, you know, um, is a really deep American experience. Um, and it's 
I mean, I think it's more American than Trump in many, many ways. Um, and it's far more American than Trump. It's far older and far deeper. Um, and so to see that basically, you know, what the rest, what the DNC is constantly telling Bernie is like, dude, you're taking the mask off. You can't do that. What the fuck? They're seeing mm. who you, I mean, you mm. know, and, and, and Bernie is like, no, I think actually it's time for candor. And I think basically when you show the people something real and something fake, just as when you show them like Trump and all the people running against Trump, they're like, you know what? Trump, this like blowhard is actually way more real than all of these strange plastic people like Rubio, right. you know, and, and, um, and I think that's true of basically Sanders, like it's like Trump and Rubio are like Sanders and Buttigieg, right? You know, um, all right. I think, should I cut you off there? You Is that cut, cool? Cut me off. That was, I've, that I've was really interesting. Too many people already. No, 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 that was great. That was interesting. I just want to get, let a lot of people talk. That was interesting to know that you're, you're based on Bernie. Actually, I think my buddy, Elliot Rosenstock, but maybe I, has I a question. I do also on want Bernie to be Trump. You, you, so that's interesting. I don't think many people would predict that you would rather Bernie beat Trump. I endorsed Obama twice. That's interesting. Not many people know that. I think people, 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 people have different priors about you. So that's, that's revealing. Who else? Who else? Who's got something good, man? We're getting raucous here. Like, seriously. All right, Elliot, man. What's up? Elliot Rosenstock. So benevolent dictatorship. Is that not like essentially Marxist Leninism? Is- are you talking about de- are you talking about democratic centralism? Um, you know, are you saying that 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 the uh, you know the the proletarian will can only be made effective through a pro- proletarian vanguard? Well, no, I'm so saying like, no, like, no, saying. no, no, none of that. We're not. No, I'm not doing any of that. To you right now. Um, I'm no, I'm not. I'm really not making a pitch. I'm like, I, I mean, like literally, like say Kim Jong Kim Jong Un owns North Korea under his name. But Hypothetically, Kim- communism is this benevolent system is that not the benevolent I, I think what you'll find if you look at the case of Kim Jong Un specifically um I think um you know uh, uh you know um you know my policy uh, you know I hate to do this if I were king the way I would treat Kim Jong Un is basically Kim Jong Un is in a very uncomfortable position because he's he's at war against the whole world and he's at war against his whole country and he can trust no one and basically if anyone manages to stab him in the back he's gone and so, in a way, he's in a very similar position to, like, Stalin in the 1930s, which is that um, he dies if he can't hold power. And, um, you know, his only way of holding power is to be incredibly brutal, which is a really fucked up situation. Um, and so, you know, if you were, like, I think if the U.S. were able to say, Kim Jong-un was educated in Switzerland. He went to, like, a school in Geneva. I'm sure he speaks perfectly good English. And yeah, you know what? That's lit. What's that? <laughs> yeah. Big Dennis Rodman fans who, you know, he, he's just That's like us. Lit. And, you know, the thing is that, you know, if, if, if there was a wise, enlightened, you know, maybe a benevolent dictator in charge of the United States, somehow you could imagine that. And, you know, that person could be like, say to Kim Jong-un, look, and say credibly, which is the real problem, look, man, it's a fucked up situation. Here's what we got for you. We got a billion dollars. We got plus a billion dollars. We got this amazing place in the south of France. Okay, and third thing is we have a plane. You want to get on the plane, you'll be a billionaire in the south of France, and we'll give North Korea to South Korea, and they can fix the place up. And he would, uh, very confident, take that deal in a hurry. And so, you know, um, um, and, and you'd free the people of North Korea without, like, any, like, you know, ridiculous, you know, Korean War 2.0 or something. Um, and so, you know, in a way, like, when you look at the kind of power base of someone like that, you're like, 
you can actually see why he can't be a benevolent dictator. Like, there's just no way, even if you wanted to be one, he couldn't. So, you know, th- another example is you look at the fate of Russia and China after the fall of communism. Russia falls <laughs> apart. China is like, we can actually allow private corporations because we're strong enough that they won't, like, overthrow the state and kill us. So, actually, Deng Xiaoping can be a benevolent dictator. Um, and it, it's a sort of, it's not, it's not weakness that makes him, that creates that strength. It's actually strength that allows that benevolence. You know, Deng Xiaoping could be a benevolent dictator because of the strength created by Mao, who was anything but a benevolent dictator. All right. Excellent answer. Uh, who's next? Give us something good. What do you got? Uh, I'm just going to go in the order I saw it. Go ahead. Uh, earlier you said that all true artists grit. I have a question from the Tech Wars fan network. <laughs> Thank on, you, sir. Will you go back on Tech Wars? I will at least consider it. All right. Seriously, uh, dude, that's your question? It's a great, it's a great question. I got nothing but love for Tech My Wars. My answer but... for the Tech Wars, uh, you know, but but the, the right the right thing, I, I you know, uh, is another guest. Give me a three way. I want a three way. Three way. Okay. Three way. I'll let him know. Thank you. All right. Thank you. What do you got? I feel like one of the uh, most important group distinctions that no one ever talks about is like high IQ versus low IQ. Dude. It's controversial. There you go. Take Dude. it, man. Go for it. Go, go. Yeah, let's hear it. No, you go. Oh, I think he's just giving oh, you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, well, yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well, well, I, I, I think one of them. Like, I think that's an important thread throughout all of history. Is like the masses versus the high IQ elite. I think that's a useful frame for all of history. Uh, yeah, and and one of the the uh, it is a useful frame. I mean, it's essentially uh, you know the forces of democracy versus the forces of oligarchy, and you know it's clearly dominant in terms of who makes calls the shots today, despite bullshit like the Trump administration is oligarchy. Um, and um, if you look at that as a conflict where basically it's like, or, you know, black versus white or whatever the fuck, like one side, you know, like the idea of um, thinking in terms of any government that is sane in terms of like a conflict, like is this government going to be like better for like high IQ people or low IQ people or like, you know, Asians or whites or whatever the fuck. As soon as you're thinking in those terms, those are basically the terms of civil war. And those are just sort of retarded terms to think in terms of, if you'll excuse the phrase. Um, and, um, but I mean it as pejoratively as possible. Like it's really bad to think of that as a natural conflict is really, really bad. And so when you're thinking in terms of like solace populi supreme elects, you have to acknowledge that both high IQ and low IQ people are people. You're, you're with me on that? Um, and amen. So, a- amen. And so, you know, in a sense, um, you know, our society. There is a natural conflict there more naturally than between other groups. That's the point, right? I don't think there's a conflict at all. I think they work together really, really well. And I think that um, it's true that if you assume that you're in a society in conflict somehow, and if you assume that conflict is essential to the nature of a political society, which is pretty core assumption in democracy, yeah, you're going to get that. But I, I don't really believe that at Honestly, all. Honestly, I think if there's a conflict, uh, Curtis is the star of the show, not me, but if there's a conflict, it's the high IQ people exploiting the low IQ people. Like all these l- fucking woke ass left wing professors and shit, those are high IQ people essentially manipulating lower IQ people on their own team for their own self-interest. So if you're thinking in terms of solace populist supreme elects, you know, you have to admit that, you know, lower IQ people are people too. We're going to go with that. Um, And um, um, then, you know, what what does their health mean? And, you know, to me what their health means is simply that, you know, they, like, like other people, should be able to fulfill their potential to the maximum, you know, they should fulfill their maximum human potential. 
because that's what makes them as healthy as possible. Does that mean they're going to be quantum physicists? No. But does that mean that, you know, they can't be, you know, master shoemakers? No, I don't think so. And the thing is, you know, I have a, a great story about this, which is, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis. Heard of him. Yeah. So uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is not only a star actor, but a member of, like, his father was Cecil Day-Lewis, the, you know, the poet. Uh, this is the most patrician person imaginable. And, of course, wealthy beyond your imagining. Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, you know, you might have seen him in My Left Foot. He took two years off of his career to apprentice in Italy to become a master shoemaker. So, you know, in a sense, I'm like, if it's good enough for Daniel Day-Lewis, it's basically good enough for J. Random Low IQ person. But how do you actually make that Hell happen? Hell yeah, especially nowadays, that, that shit's a badass, right? If you can actually do shit like make shoes, chicks want to fuck you. That's impressive, right? I mean, now, Damn. no, seriously, nowadays, it's like that, that shit's relatively high status in certain cultures. Who made your shoes, Justin? Probably uh, very underpaid workers in a third world country, unfortunately. Yeah, probably Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, what else we got? Yeah, what do you got? Um, so you spoke about uh, contradictions and, um, and interventions. And you spoke about a certain mechanism for intervention uh, as like a pill dispenser. That was Justin's term, but sure. Right, yeah. I just, you know, this is what I'm getting. And so <clears> I was asking, actually wanted you to elaborate on the sense in which uh, interventions could be described as a pill dispenser. So, you know, when, when you have, an, you know, an intervention, you know, let's say, um, you know, your sister is a heroin addict or whatever, basically, you're like, you know, you sit her down and you're basically like, you've made bad choices and I love you. And so, you know, the essence of like, you've made bad choices and I love you is like, that's the way that all those conversations need to be structured. So you're basically not saying, and so you're saying, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to fight against you you actually have a disease which causes you to be doing these insane, crazy things and be saying these just ridiculous things. And I'm actually on the side of the good person that I see inside you, which is a very different way to sort of proceed than the, like, you know, we're going to, like, war over our ideas over which idea is better or worse and, you know, whatever. Like, that's a very unproductive way of doing dialogue. I mean, the intervention is very, very hard. It rarely succeeds, but it's the only thing that has a chance to succeed. Has your open letter to leftists converted many leftists? Do you ever get emails from leftists saying, oh, man, that really touched me? Uh, actually, if you email moldbug at gmail.com, I don't read it. So um, there's, I'm sure there's a huge uh, – yeah, no, I, I've definitely – like, like it, it's, you know – Because like, your open letter, I think – your open letter to leftists, I think, if, if you're curious about this Open letter to an open-minded pro open yes, progressive. And, and you haven't read any Google of his that. blog, I think that's a really good place to start. It's really fun. I mean, it's like – it's you're, you're definitely very good at hacking into – people's presuppositions and kind of luring them down roads that are logically kind of undeniable, but that they don't necessarily want to go down. I, I'm just kind of curious. Well, have, yeah. have you had, have you had, do you have evidence of success? Oh, kind yes, of, I, I definitely, uh, I, I killing, red pilling people. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, like actually most, uh, you know, it's actually much harder to red pill conservatives. Um, it's really, really hard. I, like I work really hard on that, but it's very, very difficult. Um, you know, it's like the cultural, you know, gap between these is really, really great. But, you know, um, you know, whereas, uh, you know, progressives, I'm, I'm one of these people, I speak their language, I have their, their ideals. Um, it's much easier for me. Um, cause your grandparents were communists, communists Jewish right. communists in Brooklyn. And your parents worked, one of your parents worked for the state, state department. department. That's right. 
uh, my State Department, Department of Energy. My stepfather was on the Hill for 20 years. Um, right. So, so you're really kind of internal to this milieu. You're not. You're not I never kind of worked there again. myself, but like I sort of had, you know, the experience of it growing up in a sense. Right. Um, and um, yeah, no, I mean, it, the whole thing needs to be, uh, you know, well, I, w- I was about to say it needs to be set on fire, but, uh, you know, I mean that in the nicest possible way. All right. So what else do we got? What do you got? My man right here. You seem to insist that like all the best things you've said are, are the negative things and not the positive ones, and perhaps that's why you call everything that that's occurred tonight um, bullshit, because we're interested in hearing some positive things you have to say. And on that, I, I, I want to, I wonder if you do have something positive to say, not about ideas, but about pragmatics, because you have to be doing something. Well, so 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 the, you know the question is we've been forgetting to repeat the questions because we're amateurs. But um, the question is basically, um, you know, you insist on the negative ideas being being more relevant than the positive ideas. I would say that the negative ideas are much better formed and much clearer and much more relevant than any of the positive ones. The positive ones are just not relevant yet because we're not in a world where they could possibly matter. Um, you know, nonetheless, it's important to, in a sense like sort of develop that vision um you know if anyone wants to uh you know try their hand at uh, writing crap like this there's a genre actually that used to exist but no longer exists um um really a medieval even pre um you know pre-enlightenment genre basically called the mirror for princes and a mirror for princes in a way machiavelli's prince is kind of in this genre although it kind of breaks the genre um a mirror for princes is uh, a book written by you know, an ordinary intellectual, basically as a guide for what to do if you're a prince. Um, And of course, you know, being a prince in that sense means being a real or rather absolute monarch. So in a sense, you know, one of the, there are many, many reasons why you can't have any kind of monarchy, absolute or otherwise, in this country today, like I could reel off 10 probably, Um, you know, but one of them is simply you just have no, no one has any idea what this person would do. Um, or what would be the kind of like people think of of public policy in terms of how do you change this thing that is DC and make it into something else, which is just impossible. But um, you know, no one thinks, oh, what would be done with this if you didn't have to obey any of its ridiculous policies and procedures at all? All right, how about maybe one or two more? But they better be fucking edgy, goddammit. it! I'm like trying to, I, I want to be excited here. Uh, I mean, these are all good questions. By uh, seriously, I mean, but I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for things to get dicey. You know what I mean? Like we're taking shots and shit. Hang tight, hang tight. Uh, anyone else? Some, some, any, anyone who jumps up too quickly at that, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little. Uh, like, also, it's, it's, it's better if you uh, haven't asked a question before. Yeah, Let's someone, get... someone who hasn't, someone who hasn't. Yeah, that guy over there. What's up, man? With a beard. You're gonna have to shave that beard for your mask, you know. <laughs> Um, so Jeff Bezos is one of the most wealthy, powerful individuals on the planet right now, and he has been voting a large amount of his fortune to space exploration. So as a sort of ideal, like, CEO king kind of thing, um, I could see him being someone who would become a space-based CEO king. So could you speak on 
Uh, well, you know, space is, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm not super, uh, you know, I love, like, you know, I mean, Elon Musk is amazing. I mean, who, who would not find Elon Musk amazing? But, um, you know, uh, Mars is, uh, you know, let's colonize Antarctica first. I'm one of these Antarctica first people. Um, uh, you know, and, you know, it's funny. When it's like when you talk about, like, Bezos or Musk or, you know, Jobs, or these are really very exceptional people. Um, even for, you know, large-scale CEOs, they're really, you know, they're people who in another situation would be historic figures, and perhaps they're historic figures anyway. Um, you know, that would be great. But honestly, uh, you could take any one of the Fortune 500 CEOs and you'd do fine. Excellent. Very good short answer. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting <laughs> some signals from my more uh, socially calibrated, calibrated friends. That, People's uh, butts are starting to yeah, hurt. Yeah, maybe we're talking too long. I could just talk about the shit forever. So you should have done an intermission, man. I'm there should have been caliber- an intermission. No, dude. No, dude. I'm told. I'm told that LA has enough fucking music and enough fucking bullshit, and LA doesn't. LA doesn't have enough like long fucking talks. So that's what we delivered. But I don't want to push the envelope. All right. So this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming out. Uh, we are gonna be. We're gonna still hang out. We're gonna be playing some music. There's still beer and Jack Daniels and pizza at the bar if you want some. And uh, real quick, all I want to say real quick before we wrap this up, and everyone should hang out, socialize, uh, talk shit with each other, and chill. We're going to play some SoundCloud rap and shit like that. Um, Super lit, fire shit. Um, uh, But real quick, I need to give a shout-out to my man uh, Barrett Avenue right here. And And Alex Talon right here. and I, I'd like to I'd like to I'd like to thank uh, Justin for organizing the evening. Uh, he seems to be doing. I don't know if he looks like a David Geffen. I think less hair, maybe. Uh, uh, um, um, but Geffen had this kind of Jufro, you know, like my dad. Uh, and um, but uh, you know, I, I think you're doing great. And I'd really like to uh, huge thank you for Justin to for organizing. Uh, you know. Um, this and to the staff for putting it together. Um, Thank you, Curtis, for driving all the way down here. And to the audience for coming here and being here and having a good time. And let's. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Oh, yeah. All right. All, all I would say is that if you're local to this area and you're interested in doing more shit like this, talk to these guys, uh, Alex and Barrett of Contain. They're really interested in doing more stuff like this. So there needs to be more stuff of this. As I said at the beginning, if you walked in late, more than five people flew here from another state for this. Okay? There's massive demand for just radical, truly independent, truly free, dangerous intellectual exchange and discussion and events. Put them on. That We need more of them. People want it. If you make it, they will come. Don't be afraid. Don't be a fucking pussy. Do real shit. People will come. People are, if people are flying to this, people will come to your local shit. Do it. That's my exhortation to you all. Thank you so much for coming. And now let's party a little bit. Yeah? Cheers.